Hello, hello, and welcome to the Inglorious Bastards Podcast, where we talk about spirituality, news, and how to seek asylum in Canada in five easy steps. My name is Michael Basinger. With me are Brad Polly, Matt Polly. Hey there. Together, we are the Inglorious Bastards. Announcements. Um, we've got uh, new hymns of reconstruction, new airing of Dick Pounder's Grief, up at patreon.com slash pastorspodcast. Um, yeah, and we got a new segment coming up. Get ready. Get your life ready. But Do first, you? yeah, before we before we get into the new segment, we've got the... Uh... Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, what are you drinking? Hey, hey. Uh, what are we drinking? Um, I'm having from uh, Left Hand Brewing Company their Nitro Flamingo Dreams. Ooh, yeah, it's uh, that looks good. It's is that the red drink you're drinking? Yes, mm. uh, it's very very pink. Yeah. What what the fuck is it? It's a blonde ale with raspberries and black currants. Oh, hey, and it's on nitro. Hey, friend, uh, can I have one of those? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I had to ask you on, on send, the podcast. Send money to PayPal. All right, I'll, I'll send you money to PayPal. <laughs> Jesus <funny>. Christ. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're going to have a fruity drink like that and drink it in my presence. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, yes, you may have one, Michael. I am drinking uh, the very last can of the Atlanta Hard Cider Crisp Apple. That's it just sounded in, good. It's been in there for a while. Yeah. yeah. This is the, the Fraser beer. I think the last one. I'm also going to be having my uh, Abelauer 16 Highland Scotch that I bought last night. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, I'm having the uh, Taxman Big Red collab, the Build a Beer. Oh yeah, I've had that for quite a while, and I hadn't yeah. tried it. It's good. good. You hadn't tried that no, yet? No, Belgian oh, style rye brown ale with vanilla. It's really good. It is. It's nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. All oh, right. and I'm having uh, my E.H. Taylor single barrel whiskey bourbon. Yeah. Nice. Uh, this round is on Alex Samuel. Oh, A. Sam's. Oh, Ali Sam's. Ali Sam's. Al- Al- <laughs> Prince Ali Babwa. No. Prince Ali Sam's. Isn't it? Alibaba is not sure. a yeah. Prince of yeah. Okay. I don't know, Michael. Uh, I don't watch Disney movies. Alex. Well, you should. Uh, Alex is. <laughs> well, the, your life is the poorer for yes. it. Uh, Alex is the husband to. Uh, it says Anna, but uh, do we do Anna or Anna? I don't know. He didn't. He didn't uh, give me a. Is it two ends or one? It's, it's two ends. Probably Anna. Anna. All right. Alex is the husband of Anna and. Dog dad. Name Conda. Well. (laughs) She don't want none. (laughs) Wow. All right. Uh, Dog dad to Addison. Um, He first started listening to the Inglorious Bastards podcast a few years ago, but got offended at some point uh, within the first few episodes. Sounds about right. So he quit listening, because why not? Um, Something drew him back about a year later. And he hasn't stopped listening the since. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord. Yeah, the Spirit of the yeah. Lord has, has moved That upon happens you. sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alex's wife, uh, Anna, actually bought his first Conda. year. Yeah, no. Nope. That's not her name. Still doesn't want any. Um, bought his uh, his first year's uh, Patreon membership as an anniversary gift. So, <laughs> thanks, Anna. Boy, well, that's you get screwed. <laughs> um, uh, Al- Alex loves I the. I take back all the Conda stuff. Anaconda stuff. Yeah. So. Um, 
Alex loves the what are you drinking and meditating with Gary Busey segments. Mm. Do you have any Gary Busey's in honor no. of Alex? Oh, damn it. I kind of ran the gamut of Gary Busey, I think. I mean, Gary Busey, uh, I mean, he should come back, I think. Dude, I was like three years deep on his Twitter as it was. Okay. Like, yeah. Um, I basically the, the, just got to the point where I was tired of looking. They're, they're not all winners. <laughs> he said, and, and Michael is by far his favorite host, so suck that. Uh, when it comes to the soundboard, uh, he is a, a big fan of the soundboard. Thank God. Um, he. That doesn't even fucking make any sense. It has nothing to it's do with board. anything. It's a soundboard. Soundboard. He said his his favorite uh, soundboard sounds are. Okay. Anyone else liking it. him less and less yeah. as this goes uh-huh. on? Or is it just um, me? Hey, just go ahead and keep your money, buddy. I don't. I don't have this one. Uh, he he says I don't know where the fast forward button is. Do you have that one, Matt? I don't know what a fast forward button is. Yeah, like that one. that's courtesy of uh, Bojangles. Yeah, or Ch- what Chester? Or I like that one because I actually have a sense of humor about myself. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? Um, the yeah, that's the same thing as talking about my balls. Yeah, what? that is a joke too. Nobody yeah. cares. Like nobody, nobody cares about your Jesus balls, man. Christ. Nobody, nobody cares. Matt's balls so small. <laughs> I don't it's not a, a slugger. It's a cute. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. That's why you brought it up for no reason. Um, his, his <laughs> no, I did it because I know it pushes your buttons. His uh, his other favorite one is uh, on Chris Hansen. No, you're not. Is that? No, you're not. That's a good one. one. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Also, this one, Michael Basinger. <laughs> How do I know that name? Oh, maybe it's B Boy sixty nine from the transcripts I've been reading. Michael Chris Hansen here. You know, I'm gonna need you to have a seat because of those weird text messages you've been sending Brad and Matt Polly. This is still the weirdest. You're still Team Michael despite this. And I just also want to say hello to everybody at Pastor's Pub. So behave yourself. Cut it out. Be good. That was legit Chris Hansen yep. talking about us. So weird. Uh, Alex strongly wishes for an entire soundboard episode. I mean, I, no. We could do that. No. We could. I won't be here. No. I, I'm, well, I'm, that's I'm, the idea is you literally wouldn't be here. I'm, it would sick. Just be, I'm sick that week. It would just be me hitting the beeps and boops just for two and a half hours. That sounds entertaining. Um, Alex currently works for a non-for-profit in, uh, for non, a not-for-profit in Indy, helping high school students prepare and plan for college for free. Yes. Nice. He he has even been to Martinsville High School on plenty of occasions. Oh, nice. He even started to get into the fancier beer like Goose Island, Sun King, (laughs) and Upland thanks to the pub. Alex also loves to read and his favorite book is series is the Aragon series by Christopher P. Oh. Pale. I haven't read those with my kid. Two of my kids have a lot. I've them. never read them. Yeah, I haven't read it. I, I uh, think I bought it to read it. Hopefully I'll read it soon. I, no, I definitely have the movie. So there's that. They made a book out of that? They made a book out of that? Um, he's still trying to convince his wife that naming their, their first child after a dragon, Sephira, is not a stupid <laughs> idea. Uh, she's yet to be convinced. Yeah, don't do that. He will keep you all updated. No, don't do that. Uh, I named my child after, not after a dragon, but after characters from... Um, yeah, Puddle Glum and the White Witch. Yeah, Puddle Glum and the White Witch are named after characters in Chronicles of Narnia. No, their names are Puddle Glum and the White Witch. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And they're from the Chronicles yeah. of Narnia. Yep. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to buy us around... Uh, thanks, Alex. Yeah, thanks, buddy. If you'd like to buy us around, head on over to uh, patreon.com slash 
pastor to oh, yes. It is uh, damp over yes. here. <laughs> Literally like the bayou in here. Not a lot of air moving the old garage. <laughs> yeah. Remember last week and it was raining on me? If we could get some more of that yeah. right now, that'd yeah, be great. Um, I'm going to get a mister bottle and just spray myself. All right. New segment. And I feel like we've we've gone. I wanted to put it at the front of the episode, but uh, here it is. It's kind of at the front. Um yeah, this is the new segment. What, so, what, what is this segment? You're, you're about to find out. We've talked about it. Did we? What the fuck is going on? Uh, so, <laughs> this new segment's we're called... Just, we're done being subtle. This, like <laughs> This new segment's called What the Fuck is Going On? Uh, I've, we There's been a lot of shit going on in the world, and uh, I feel like we need to, to kind of talk about a little bit of that. Yeah. So yeah, I'll start. Yeah. So for those listening in the back catalog, <laughs> right? Listening to this from two years uh, from now. Yeah. Well, wait. What? If people in the future are listening to this, what the fuck is going on right now? Oh, all the the protests about um, George police Floyd. brutality and you know, I just I I just I don't know. I mean, I, I'm realizing. More so than ever, and I think I've I've known this for a while. More so than ever, how much the three of us—not just the three of us—but we benefit from the current system. Oh, for like, sure. And I am realizing how that I still have a lot of ignorance, less so than I did five years ago. Sure. But more so, like more than I really want to have. Well, on there's always something to learn. This I mean, topic, and that's yeah. and that's I think that's the word is learn. Yeah. Like white people, god damn it! Like, yeah, go ahead and read. Go ahead and post. It's bugged me for a, a few years about everybody on MLK Day post all the white people posting their quotes, and it's be like you realize that like you probably wouldn't have liked him, no, yeah, in the sixties. No. So, like, he had a hell of a lot to say. Read his quote on on white moderates. How what he thought of white moderates? Mm-hmm. Sometime people that just kind of sit in the middle and like. Yeah. Uh, basically the same people that today are like, well, you know, that killing was bad, but this rioting, blah, blah, blah. Like, f- just fucking stop. Yeah. Just fucking stop. Shut up. Yep. Shut the hell up and listen to black voices, period. Yeah. Like, I have three books ordered from Amazon because I'm realizing my ignorance. They're all on back order, so I don't know when the hell I'm going to get them. Yeah, and no, I saw that. But this is where I wish I had a Kindle, but... Um, I don't think you can get them on Kindle either. Can, can you not? You can get a, a Kindle app on your phone. It's really? Free. Yeah. Man, that's, God, that's a tiny ass screen. It is though. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, you can change the font size too. So I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about the podcast and uh, with all this, and I was like, you know, maybe we should have, you know, a, a black person come on and, and talk about all this about anti-racism. And I was like, you know what? It is not their goddamn responsibility no. to talk about that. Yeah. And to try not. to educate us. It's not. Read. There's plenty of good literature out there. There's plenty of good articles. There's pr- plenty of books. There's plenty. We have, we have to white people. We got to educate ourselves on this shit. Yep. yep. Like I felt like at this point having, you know, having a black person come on and talk about this would have been patronizing and wait a waste of their time. Yep. Because they're not going to say anything that you can't read in the new Jim Crow white fragility, uh, how to be anti-racist. There's a million books out there. And let's, let's be cl- clear. We will gladly give Absolutely. Our, our platform to them. Any, Absolutely. Any, any if, time. It, but if, if any, if anybody, if any black person is listening and wants to do that, hit us up. 
Yeah, we're not going to go asking people because it's up to us to educate to educate ourselves. Yep. I like I've and I've been guilty of that. Like I think I've been guilty of like waiting for somebody else to explain shit to me instead of going out and really studying it for myself and educating myself. Yeah. One of the cool things that um, has happened in the, the pastor's pub this week is that um, we had some people just say, Hey, what would you think about uh, starting a anti uh, racism book club where we inform ourselves to, to, to be more informed and then also how to be a better ally um, regarding race and uh that's we had so many people um say that they wanted to be a part of that so that's starting up very i think this week if not next week um yeah i i i think we we as we have to take this into our own hands in terms of owning our responsibility and it's too easy for us to just to ignore it it's so easy i i've been wrestling with my idea of what i'm supposed to do and what what part i'm supposed to play in this um i've had uh, a couple of conversations with um, with people who have who have said shit like uh, "all lives matter." Oh, dude! I uh, just like can't. you fucking, I fucking have can't. missed the point. I just fucking can't, man. Um, and, and so I, I I don't know what my my part is. That I'm trying to figure that out. Um, I'm not big on social media. Like that's not something I am comfortable on on hardly anything. So I don't know if that's if that's the platform for me to to say it or if it's in a private conversation like some of the ones I've been having yeah. um, lately. Um, but I, I don't know what that, I don't know what my role is in that. Um, so I'm trying to figure, figure that out. Um, but I, I know one thing is I need to be more informed than what I am. And I have to own that. Yep. So, and I think more than just informed, like we can't just read this shit as knowledge. Yeah. Like for the sake of knowledge, we actually have to read it and then put some of it into practice to try to end the systemic bullshit. Yep. Because it is just, I, you know, I mean, I know the protests are about, you know, George Floyd, but they're really not just, I mean, it's, it's generations of police brutality and excessive force and murder. And and it's, it's, this is, that was the catalyst, but that's not, it's not like, that's what I've seen so many people, like so many, like just ignorant white people going, Oh, but like, is this all this worth one person's life? A, fucking yes. Yeah. But B, it's not just no, about this not. one instance. God damn. You could name 10 in the last year and a half. Yeah. Like, yep. I mean, and those are high profile ones. Those aren't, I mean, think of the ones that didn't get videotaped. Yeah. I mean, Armad Arbery, that doesn't, he, yeah. those guys don't get prosecuted if that video doesn't come out. Yep. Uh, this one, those guys get off scot-free they still might get off scot-free and it was Uh on videotape. So it's just, you know, I know. I mean, I'm having a discussion with a guy I know right now on Facebook and just like, God damn dude. Like, you know, he even said like, he even said, you know, I just, on, on, I see on this side, you just don't see a problem with the system. Like a fucking course you don't see a problem. Jesus Christ, dude. Are you serious? I mean, because I was like, that's, that's you exactly. That's that the is, problem. That's privilege. That's white privilege. That's the you, problem. You don't see a problem yeah. with it. Yeah. So it, it's just, I don't know, man. I don't even know what to do. Well, anymore. I saw, I mean, I was, I sent a, I put a picture in the pub that I was in the break room. If you don't get there early enough to the break room, somebody ends up, inevitably turns it on Fox news. And so it was on Fox news and the, was it the 
Probably the Chiron. The Chiron. Yeah. Uh, let me find the picture I took. Said, showed a picture of police, and it said, crowds target police during protests in nation. In Even nation though I'm like, go ahead and you, turn that around. You got that backwards. Like, it's yeah. the cops attacking. Yeah, I'm sure there are people attacking the cops, but the cops are attacking the people in peaceful protesters. Yeah. And beating them senseless and tear gassing them and shooting them with rubber bullets it's and paint happening guns. in Indianapolis. It's man. happening everywhere. Yeah. And, and that's that's the divide, is that you've got these fucking idiots that watch Fox News and think it's real. That's where they're getting their information from, that the crowd is attacking the cops. No, they're fucking not. Yeah. Well, the reality is this this should make all of this should make all white people exceedingly uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. Yep. If you're not uncomfortable with what's happening right now, yeah. and I don't mean uncomfortable of, oh, my God, the rioters. No, no, no. I mean, like uncomfortable with watching a black man get literally murdered in front of people on the street that you should be uncomfortable we if should all be fucking uncomfortable and go okay so how do i personally benefit from this system and how can i change it yeah. help change yep. it you can't be pro-life and and not have some feelings about a man getting killed on the street absolutely you 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 just can't you can't tell me that you're pro-life it's fucking bullshit all right. Um, and while we're at it, demilitarize the police. Yes. Yeah, that's Jesus a good place Christ. to start. Yeah. My God, our they our, don't need fucking armored vehicles. Our local man. police force has an armored vehicle. I know. Are you fucking kidding no. me right now? Well, like, I saw a stuff. I saw a stat today. I saw a picture of uh, there was a, a, a no knock warrant raid, fucking SWAT team for like a drug thing or something. It wasn't even the people weren't even involved. It was somebody to use their Wi Fi. They threw a flashbang into the... Yeah, they hit a baby. 17-month-old baby. It's now in critical condition with burns all over its face. Probably be deaf for the rest of its life. And I saw the stat was, in 1984, there were only 3,000 SWAT raids. I think this year or the year before, 40,000. Yeah. That's that's their go-to tactic. It's fucking SWAT teams. It is. All right. This concludes. It's because... Cops in this in this country have like a freaking war boner, yeah. Like, yeah, of just like a lot of them are ex-military. I know a lot of them are, and that's yeah. not that's not a slam on the military. But there's a lot. I mean, I know two guys. Yeah, that but are, military is mm-hmm. different than police force, yeah. and it's yep. supposed to be. Yeah. Yep. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Now All right. Pissed. Let's move it. on. Uh, not to to minimalize what's going on, but yeah, you know. <laughs> Yep. Is that Earth Crisis? I don't know who no. it is. Um, uh, do we, what do we want to do next? Do we want to do, um, the, do the let's poetry? Do, let's do Bright Side. Um, wait. Do we want to do music? Let's do music. Let's do music. I don't have music anything. Time. So. You don't I mean, have any music? I haven't downloaded one new right. album this week. So really? I got, I got yeah. plenty. So, do you want to go first? Yeah. Right. Um, uh, it's raps. Um, it's Freddie Gibbs and The Alchemist. It's a really good album. The album's called Alfredo. Nice. Uh, I love Alfredo. I know. Uh, the song is God More is Perfect. Like red song. All right, let's get out. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
two mic checker. Still back that blood out of Savannah, like I pray to Mecca. All this gang shit in my brain, I got the rank, I got the blessing. Take some metros out the brick, we press a brick, it ain't no pressure. Sipping tiki in my kiki, I'm with Didi and Vanessa. Top nine bitches on my roster, get the most and not the less. A pop from at me in the valley, drop the whole up on Winneka. Take some metros out the brick, we press a brick, it ain't no pressure. Yes, I. I didn't wanna speak on this shit, but it's really been racking my brain now. Cause really, I fuck with this rap, but my niggas still selling cocaine now. The crackers, they got enough on us to go start a motherfucking case now. A nigga get hit with the Rico, they come and they snatching the game now. I like it. Sweet. Um, so, okay, so um, I literally just changed mine yesterday. I've had, I have like six songs lined up. but uh, um, So, as we know, it's been a heavy week. It's been a heavy past few months with everything. it's just been coronavirus. A this week then, has been so bad. I've forgotten about the pandemic. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like literally hasn't even crossed my mind. Uh-huh. Yep. So, and then with, with George Floyd and what's been going on with, with the marches with, uh, t- today is our, yesterday was the start of pride month. Um, and, and I realize that I don't carry the same weight as some of, of my friends in both of those communities, both the black community and the LGBTQIA plus community. Yep. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't carry that weight. Um, b- but I don't, but I know what it's like to feel alone. Um, and I don't want any of my friends in either of those communities to ever feel alone. So I was, I was really thinking about that yesterday and, uh, just out of nowhere, this song came on and, um, I'd never heard it. Um, it's by a band called Judah and the lion. Um, and I, 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 after I heard it, it, it ooh, there's a dead bug. <laughs> they have a bug zapper. Um, after, after I heard it, I went back and like listened to like the, the thought behind the album. Cause there's a voicemail at the very beginning of, um, one of the guy's moms after she had listened to the album and the whole album is just like this guy dealing with a bunch of shit in his life. Uh, a lot of family stuff going on. And, and then, so he recorded this album and is vulnerable and raw and uh he sent it to his mom and then his mom called him back and and left a voicemail about what she thought about the album um anyway um i just want my friends in those communities to know that they're not alone so that's that's kind of what this song says to me Hey, I listen. I just got finished listening to the album, and um, I cried a little. I laughed a little, but um, dude, I love it, and I, I think it's real and raw, and I think you did the right thing. And I think it not only um, may bring you know help and hope to a lot of others. I think it, it gave me a lot of hope. And um, anyway, I loved it. I guess you're just broken I guess you're just hoping for more I guess you're just reaching I guess you're just in need of love But you're not alone You're not alone I guess I'm just broken I guess I'm just hoping 
for more I guess I'm just reaching I guess I'm just in need of love But I'm not alone I'm not alone In this Love how it slowly builds yeah, up too Yeah, I like that too I'm not alone I'm not alone I was thinking about this podcast and how we all felt so alone when we started this with yep. deconstruction and this has given us a a community yep so, well and how many people have messaged us or given us reviews about they thought they were alone yeah yeah I just wanted to call and say I'm proud of you and I'm um, you know I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I can't pay through all that I do I hate it I hate it I think I think it's real, and I think it's raw, and I think it's you know, I think it's precious, and I love it, and um, I'm, I'm so proud of you. I'm glad you're my son. So I'm glad you're real, and and can, I just I don't know. I just love you, and I thank you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's good. And it and it goes on the the next half the songs like the best is yet to come. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, it was like, damn, I probably listened to it 20 times yesterday. Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah. So, that's good stuff. Yep, so that's that's my music. Um, Poetry Corner, can we do that? Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's do that. They were Oscar Wilde at heart, and they ripped off Emerson. They put the come in coming. Welcome to the Polly's Poetry Corner. Take it away, Polly. Uh, so I mentioned the, uh, the poem I wrote, I think a couple weeks ago I mentioned it, that was based on the screw tape letters and Sad But True by Metallica. Yeah. This is that poem. Sweet. It's called Down the Lane. Um, it's written from the voice of Satan, apparently. <laughs> so... <laughs> We had a lot of those. <laughs> a lot of those, that yeah. Was, that was big back oh, in the 90s. Man, yeah. Yeah. Evangelical yeah. culture. It's me again. Standing on nothing, your... <laughs> nothing says I read screw tape letters. Like, oh, God, writing yeah. a... Or listen to Masala, Sad But True by Metallica. <laughs> Standing on your tiptoes with your arms outstretched. Picking the peaches from the lowest branch. Licking your lips as your eyes water. Jesus Christ. You stand there with your mouth hanging open. Gaping like a black hole. Ingesting everything in gravitational desire. Raising the peach to the point of no return. God damn! So Satan is a horny fucker. No, huh? no, apparently, a lot of repressed sexual energy in this poem. Raising uh, the peach. And for a moment, you stop. Hesitation halts your hand, stopping short of the promised land, until you smell <laughs> the fruit that I offer. God. Damn. Oh, your body is the promise. Your land. eyes brighten, growing wide with fear and satisfaction, while your fa- your face smiles and holds onto the sweetness with exhilaration. And then you frown while your eyes mist and your heart breaks. Running down your chin is the peach juice. <laughs> <laughs> Good bittersweet God. success coming well, from no your failure. Freud would have a field day. Yeah, apparently, one. man, this is a lot. Yeah. And I laugh as you become mine, my uncontrolled, pitiful subject <laughs> on a string. Dude, I watch you struggle to untangle yourself, and I laugh oh, as you strangle in the twine. Oh, my paradise is fire where you share in my misfortune and shame. 
you took the road down which all have traveled. Well, it must be a Robert Frost thing here too. A lot of people and traveled well, down that road. I think it was and well, most, zero point zero. And while most turned around, you chose to follow, and now you know where it leads. Is that a butt sex thing? Most turned around. No, pretty sure I, I was probably been jerking off or something. So, oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> All right, oh, boy. All right. Uh, oh, do we want to do fat pastures or just want to? Yeah, why it? not? Yeah, right. I've never had one of these. Um, All right. Uh, Let's go with my scotch. Will it? Will it go? No, I won't. Would have gone well with that raspberry beer you were drinking. Yeah, yeah might have. Think I'm Had you not slammed it, it was good. So I found these in a gas station today. Um, they are. So it's a good stuff. I don't feel like they're more than like a. They are double stuff. They're they called. Uh, they're called uh, Oreo most. That stuff. is probably three to four Oreos worth of. You oh yeah, so? it, 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 it's definitely at least two. Regular Oreos stuffs. are a fucking waste of time. Don't yeah, even. They get, are. They're just. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. All right. Here yep. we go. It's perfect. Mm. Yeah. Ma'am. It's hard to beat a good Oreo, dude, with milk. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Milk. Those don't eat anything. My mm. God. Mm. That's so much cream. Amen. Mm. Mm-hmm. can feel it running down the back of my throat. <laughs> wow, those are freaking ridiculous. That's five stars for me. Yeah, that's, that's the best Oreo I've ever It had. really is. Yeah. I've always said if it's not at least double stuff, get it the fuck out of my face. Don't be, yeah, don't even waste my time. Those like, are amazing. Yeah, shit. a sleeve of those right there, like that. Was it three of them in there? There's four. That's probably about two too many, honestly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'll I'll do four or five like double stuffs. So that's generally my uh, my go to, and those are those are good. Considerably larger than a double stuff. Man, those are good. Love a good double stuff. Who doesn't? I don't know. Um, all right. Well, we got a half hour. Okay. So do you want to go into the news feed? Yeah, man. All right. Lock up your fears, dry all your tears, refill your beers. We're headed into the news feed. Into the news feed. Yeah. Um, I'm just doing good news this week. Okay. Dogs trained to protect wildlife save 45 rhinos from poachers. Nice. Wow. So they're going after hunters, I take it? Oh, I think, yeah, and they're just protecting, yeah, protecting the rhinos. <clears throat> so look, mommy, the rhino, but the rhino's giving birth. There are many reasons dogs are called man's best friends. They're loyal and smart, but endlessly childish, same, and sometimes dorky, same, and most importantly, they always have your back, even in the hardest of times. Eh. Uh, This canine fast response unit operating in South Africa always has the backs of their humans when fighting poachers and protecting wildlife and even do a much better job than their humans. Turns out in the areas where the South African Wildlife College patrol, the success rate of the dogs is around 68%, close to nice, compared to only between <laughs> compared to only between 3 to 5% success rate when there's no dogs around. 
Um, so they've already saved 45. Um, it says they uh, all kinds of dogs from beagles to bloodhounds. They begin their training when they're small puppies and grow up to be a help for park rangers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically they are trained to hunt out poachers. Wow. Um, and it That's cool. seems to be working relatively well. Good. So, yeah, good stuff. And then uh, here's one. Single man adopts 13-year-old boy after his adoptive yeah, parents abandoned this. him in a hospital. Yeah. Peter Mutabazi has had a difficult life. He grew up in a small village on the border of Uganda and Rwanda. Peter's family couldn't afford food, so they grew their own beans, peas, and sweet potatoes. He began helping his mom in, garden, in the garden at just four years old. The family didn't even have clean water, so the kids had to walk two to three hours to fetch water for the family. Let that shit sink in. Mm-hmm. Poverty was all they knew, but that wasn't all. Peter's dad abused the whole family, both verbally and physically. The man would beat his wife, deny his children food, and as time went by, the abuse only got worse. Hmm. One night when Peter was 10, his father sent him to get cigarettes. On his way back, it was pouring rain, and the cigarettes got destroyed. Peter knew that if he returned home, he would have gotten a beating. Terrified to come back, he just ran away instead. Uh, He had to go through a lot of trials and tribulations to create a better future for himself, but he persevered. He finally settled down in Oklahoma. Oklahoma! (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Man, that wasn't bland. No, it wasn't. Uh, To start a real estate business. And since his house had two empty bedrooms, his mind couldn't be at peace knowing there were kids that needed a place. So he went to a foster agency and devoted his life to serving children. Um, he said, in the, so he basically, um, uh, let's see. He said, all foster children belong to the state. Since I was licensed under a private agency, they would approach when they needed a home for kids. I've had 12 kids in the last three years, ranging from two to 11 years old. Since I'm single, I could only handle two at a time. However, he eventually met a boy whose story was too painful even for the man who had seen it all. One night, Peter received a call from a social worker asking, can you take in an 11-year-old boy just for the weekend? It was just a few days after he had said goodbye to two brothers he was fostering, so he told her that his heart was deeply saddened by the loss of those two boys that had been reunited with their birth parents. Peter thought he didn't have enough energy left to care for another child in that moment, but the back and forth with the social worker continued, and he convinced, she convinced him to take the child. So he said in the beginning he didn't want to know why Anthony, which is the kid, was in foster care. Um, he couldn't handle any more tugging at his heartstrings. He made up his mind that if the placement exceeded the weekend, he would simply refuse to allow him to stay any longer. And the social worker arrived at his home with the boy at 3 a.m. after driving two hours from another county within the state. Wow. Hmm. Um. Uh, and skipping ahead, he basically said, um, Peter told Anthony he could call them Mr. Peter, but just 20 minutes after his arrival, he asked if he could call the man dad. Wow. wow. Fast forward to Monday morning, the social worker arrived and Peter decided to ask Anthony why he was in foster care. Turns out he had been abandoned by his biological mother when he was two. He was then placed with a family that served as elders in their church. Eventually, they adopted him. But almost 10 years later, the same family that raised him abandoned him at the hospital. Elders in the church. And never never came back. Hmm. Jesus Christ. Um, But he also learned that the family relinquished their parental rights, meaning he had nowhere to go. And then Peter decided he had to take him in. So it's just, it's freaking beautiful, man. There's some great pictures on the story. And it's just, I don't know, man, there's just, it's, it, to me, that's, is just a story of like 
when you've survived hell and you decide that you're not going to let anybody else live in that if you can help it, mm-hmm. it's pretty powerful shit. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. So there's two good stories good. for this week. Two good stories. You got one? Not a good story, no. Um, oh, good. Oh, from the, both these are from the mirror. Uh, oh, God. Oh, no, gosh. So they definitely aren't. Uh, a woman. Let me guess. Uh, a, a witch married a salamander. No. A woman who is disgusted by her boyfriend's weir- weird toilet habit has asked for advice as to whether she's overreacting. All right, I'm ready for <laughs> the this. The anonymous woman explained that her boyfriend <laughs> of four another, and a half years... Is this another poop knife situation? No, refuses to go to the toilet like a normal person and insists, instead insists on squatting on the toilet seat like Gollum. Yikes. Oh. Apparently, her boyfriend, who's a prolific pooper, goes to the toilet from anywhere between four and five times a day. Dude, that's called IBS, man. Yeah. That's Good. Nice. And when he does so, he puts his feet on the toilet seat and hugs his knees to his chest. Okay, so this I, is this is actually yeah, uh, like a common thing. I will in Asia. say this. Yeah. Okay. She voiced her frustration on Reddit and asked whether it was unreasonable to ask her boyfriend to wash his toilet seat feet. Yeah. After he poops, and most people agree with her. Yeah, I could I could agree with that. Yeah. Um, that so I used to work in a in a in a, in a college town with a a very large Asian Asian population, and we would have footprints on the toilets. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like that's this is actually that's actually the similar posture to the squatty potty. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's supposed to be healthy. However, uh, she says uh, we've been together four and a half years. He's sworn off shitting like a normal person, and that he refuses to sit on the toilet. He instead insists on taking off his pants and underwear, if not getting entirely naked and squatting on the toilet seat like Gollum. That's awesome. But <laughs> then he, he'll walk around the house all day with his little toilet seat feet, putting them on the couch, the bed, uh, etc. Yeah. yeah. Um, she, she's not disputing that squatting is, is healthier. Um, she just doesn't want to, she just wants him to clean his goddamn feet. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If she, if she, I mean, if you have like a splatter effect, like you're going to get shit on your feet, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think cause you're carpet bombing. I think like they're, you're both, bombing from I think they're actually both sort of okay in this, except he needs to wash his feet yeah. afterward. I, yeah. Or, or she just needs to commit to his lifestyle and then the toilet seat will always be clean. Yeah, but he needs to clean it too. It doesn't her yeah. fucking job to clean it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I just mean like, never mind. <laughs> just get a squatty potty, bro. He really could just get a squatty potty. It would it's probably, the same. It would probably actually just take care yeah. of the issue. Yeah. yeah, for thirty bucks or whatever yeah. those cost. Your feet are a little bit farther away from the. I've been half tempted zone. to get one of those myself, but it's just so mm. weird to me. I. Yeah, sitting with your knees above your head. Yeah. No, right. it's not that high. It's pretty close. No, it's not that yeah, close. Is. Maybe for you. I sit and kick my legs. I kick my legs back over my head when I shit. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I'll send pics. Okay. Please don't. All right. Uh, I'm not done. I got okay. one more. All right. Soon to be groom left freaked out by fiance's family's wedding night ritual. Oh, okay. no. Oh, no, no. Uh, so this guy's due to marry his girlfriend. Let me guess. A witch wants to marry a salamander. No. What? Michael. The couple, both 23, have planned the, fia- the ceremony for early next year with arrangements getting underway. The man says he has noticed his girlfriend's cousins making jokes about their wedding night, which he found weird. As they brainstormed possible honeymoon destinations, his fiance revealed that they wouldn't need a bridal suite at the hotel where the wedding is taking place. Oh, no. She would like them to stay at her parents' house instead, which he has no problem with, as they are currently trying to save money to put, a house, put down a house deposit. Hmm. But since seeing that his partner was holding something back, he questioned why she was pushing the idea, and she said that her family have a really old wedding night tradition. He wrote, The husband and wife go into the master bedroom together, and they are supposed to consummate their marriage. Mm-hmm. The rest of the family are waiting outside the door, 
so they can applaud them and cheer when they come out. That's kind of funny. Then a piece of the bed sheet is cut off and sewn into a big tapestry my girlfriend's mother owns. Oh. Yikes. And he's like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with Legitimate this. question. Like, Are they Jewish? And I don't mean I don't that, know. like, because I think... Tradition! That's wasn't, a, that a, wasn't that a ancient yeah, Jewish thing, Yeah, in the fucking thing, right? first century. Yeah, it's... it's um, Tradition! It's a pretty good use of that, actually. Um, he absolutely said he freaked out and said under no circumstances that happening in front of their family. Um, his whole family, the family's been texting him and, and the mother said, I don't understand that he doesn't understand the importance of family and tradition yet. And this kind of tradition has been around longer than I've been alive. Um, <laughs> so no, one person commented, uh, tell them you'll do it in return for a dowry of a hundred head of cattle, a white stallion, a tract of arable land. Uh, a third person added, Jesus, a family sex blanket? I sure hope it's only decorative and Grandma doesn't sleep with it. <laughs> oh, I hope she does. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's that's fucking weird, man. Like, is... Okay. Sorry, it's fucking weird. It is weird. It is definitely weird. What I would say is, if I were, I would totally do it if I were if I were the groom. I would still do it. I would, no. Yeah, why not? No, that's fucking who, weird, Michael. Who the fuck cares? Michael, I don't care. No. But here's, here's the deal I would have to make. <laughs> the deal is... We we uh, go in the bedroom, and you know we we do we do the traditional thing that we traditionally do. What twelve second sex? Yes, uh, for for the for the for the first time, and then Fun. we have then then we binge watch all of Lord of the Rings, and then we come out. <laughs> Make them sit there all night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, you just have the the have your wife go. Oh my oh. god, keep fucking me! I'm so tired. My legs asleep. Ah. All right, take it, bitch. I can't feel my pelvis. <laughs> oh, not the butt. What are you doing? It's too big. Wrong hole. Wrong. No, wait. Oh, no. Uh-huh. definitely the right hole. Definitely the right hole. <sighs> All right, um, <laughs> let's do, uh, uh, well, this one actually has a theme song, so let's go ahead and just, uh, oh. Florida man, Florida man, does whatever a Florida man does, stuffing meth up his ass, no drug screen would he ever pass, look out, here comes Florida. All right, Florida man, uh, have you guys been to Bass Pro Shop? I know we've talked about it in the past. I have. It's so, been a long time. Matt, yeah. have you been to a Bass Pro Shop? No, not in a okay. long time. So you walk in, and there's a huge, giant fish tank. Yes. So Florida man decides to dive in the Bass Pro fish there tank. There it is. Yep. Uh, Florida man jumped into a fish tank at Bass Pro Shop on Mother's Day. A video posted on social media shows. The video shows a man walk up the stairs, dive into the tank at the store at the Gulf Coast Town Center and then run off. So he gets in, you know, dives in, gets in uh, and leaves. The manager followed the man out of the store and saw him leave in a silver sedan. Um, Lee County Sheriff's Office believe the man is Daniel Armendariz. I'm sure that's close. Armendariz? No, Armendariz. Armanderas, uh, 27, who is still on the it's list. not exactly America's most wanted, is it? 
so he's still on the loose. So he is, he's still wanted. He could face felony charges, um, of criminal mischief, uh, as well as trespassing. I mean, he was there. If he would have bought a couple moon pies, would have called it even. Uh, the incident happened on May 10th, but it wasn't reported until May 12th. Another, another, another bug bites the dust. Yep. Um, so I guess apparently the Bass Pro Shop spent three thousand dollars in decontaminating the the tank. Do they not know that fish live in the ocean? Yeah. Why would you have to decontaminate it? I don't, maybe he was dirty. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but even then. <laughs> But it doesn't say anything clean. about him. Don't they have a filter system in that thing? It doesn't say anything about him being covered in gelatinous goo. It's just he took a took a dive, man. So the incident is illegal. It's dangerous and highly discouraged. We work with law enforcement to investigate all individuals who personally attempt or are involved in such activities. The Bass Pro Shops said in the statement. Additionally, while incidents of this nature are extremely rare, we are dirt deeply dirt deeply concerned. <laughs> Uh, about attempts to promote the and sensationalize them, so they don't want people to know that this is a thing, but it's in the news. So. Like, there's just so much terrible shit going on. Who fucking cares? There's also a three thousand dollar reward uh, oh, for information leading sake. to his arrest. <laughs> so, so, uh, and, and the guy that uh, apparently um, did this, he posted on Facebook. <laughs> He said, uh, I already have a lawyer working on this accusation. I found it pretty petty how you detectives and officers are looking for me as if I killed somebody exactly. and have the whole task force Jesus. working on me. You have murderers and rapists on the loose and serious crimes are being committed. And do you see that all over the news? It's pathetic. So I'm going to make sure you guys have to work. So, wow. There's that. Yeah, I'm actually kind of pro this guy. I yeah. mean, it's not my type of thing. I wouldn't do something no. like that. But who fucking cares, man? Like, yeah. Just it's... found an anti-abortion poem I wrote. That's great. Oh. Shit, yeah, we're not going to read that. No, yeah. it's bad. Yeah. No. It's based on a Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote. <laughs> that really? You, that's from 1998 if it tells you how far I've come. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I got to read it when Woof. you're done. Um, This is in uh, News. <laughs> a man breaks into a bank to heat up a hot pocket. Man needs a microwave, dude. And says, hell yeah, it was worth it. California man was busted breaking into a bank. I realize most gas stations have microwaves yeah, that anybody so. can use. Fun. Have I talked to you about gas station microwaves? Yet? Oh, we, this is on the podcast, haven't we? We've talked about it, right? I don't know. I, I watch see people all the time when I'm working in gas stations bring their lunch in and yeah, warm yeah. it up. So they don't want you to... to right. Okay, so... People near drug screening places will go into... Oh, warm their piss up. Warm their piss up. Yeah. So don't ever fucking use a <laughs> so, gas station. So your piss, yeah, we had a story about that. Says so your piss is 250 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're clean, but man, do you have a problem. You got a fever. You're literally pissing boiling urine. I don't detect any alcohol, but I, I, I don't detect anything. <laughs> you burned it off. You burned it all. So, uh, yeah, it, apparently the man... <laughs> Sir, this is chicken <clears throat> soup. So television reporters were out there, and the man told the television reporters he is homeless. So, uh, totally worth it, though. So apparently he's out, out on brother the needed, Brother needed a hot That's pocket, man. Who gives a shit? Yep. 
That's a that's a victimless crime. It is hot pocket. I'm sure he had to break this is, something this is, inside. This is the American Jean Valjean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> somewhere Jim Gaffigan's ejaculating. That's a, a lame as a rob reference for anybody that hot pocket. So you had a story about dogs doing good work. I have a, 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 another good. Well, hurry because we got ten minutes for the interview. Right. So. Um, so feral pigs. Um, <laughs> That's such a great phrase. It is <laughs> feral anything really, but yeah. feral pigs especially. Feral pigs eat and destroy twenty two thousand worth of cocaine hidden in an Italian forest. Sounds like y'all got a hog problem. Yep. Well, not anymore. There. They you guys know there's a dead chicken there? God, I still want to go into a store sometime. And be like, sounds y'all like y'all got a hog, hog problem. problem. And see if anybody gets it. Nobody would get it. I no. laugh myself sick. <laughs> I know. For and then, an you hour. Would, then you would text me, and I would laugh myself Fuck sick. So, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> fuck it. You deal with the hog. After last year's drug-related murder of a 21-year-old Albanian, Italian police uh, began probing a gang of sus- suspected drug dealers who decided to hide their cocaine in Italy's boar-infested countryside. <laughs> What a sentence that is. Yeah. Boar infested countryside. Yep. So a lot of a lot of boar. So they they stashed twenty two thousand dollars worth of, of cocaine uh, in the Man, woods. Man, find those pigs and cook those motherfuckers yeah. up. That's the best goddamn pig you've ever eaten. I bet uh, Travis Pinkston had to put it on <laughs> spit. Man, be a lot of energy. Yeah. Um. So, the animals ripped into the sealed package of cocaine and proceeded to litter the nearby woodlands with its powdery contents. (laughs) I love this. Uh, I love that they have a whole backstory of where the the drugs originally came from Perugia. Never heard of it. Perugia. Perugia. All right. Uh, Is that a region of Italy? Maybe. Before being hidden in Tuscan. Yeah, uh, Tuscany. In the Tuscan forest near... That's in Tuscany. Monte Pelosiano. I'll tell you when it's time to grow a mustache. Sorry. I thought I was muted. Um, Anyway, according to Fox News, uh, the gang has been quite prolific before the arrest, selling two kilos per month at 90 and 120 per Perugia is a city in Italy. Okay. Sounds like... um, Glad we pushed through that. Yeah. The more you know. Yep. So, so there you go. There's information about feral hogs with cocaine. That's <laughs> what everybody wanted to know. Yep. All right. Um, let's do uh, further up, further in. Yep. Here we go. Um, so, Michael McRae is a writer, an educator, a facilitator, using the power of personal stories to heal, harm, make meaning, and create connection. He's the author of multiple bur- bu- books, Burks, Burks <laughs> and Burks. He's lots of Burks. Both, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, multiple books, including uh, his latest book, which we're here to talk to him about today, is I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. Uh, he works most often with the global empathy nonprofit Narrative 4. He hosts 10X9, Nashville Storytelling, and lectures at Lipscomb University, Michael writes and speaks on issues of story, conflict, reconciliation. Michael has a master's in conflict resolution and reconciliation of uh, arts from Divinity College Dublin's Belfast community, our our Belfast campus. Uh, He lives in Nashville with his wife, Brittany. Uh, You can find 
all his information at michaelmcray.com. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, he's also on Facebook, Instagram, all the, all the places. So This book is incredible. It's incredibly timely. Great. Incredibly timely. So um, without further ado, here is our conversation with Michael McRae. Further up and further up further in. Yeah. So side note on this uh, interview you're about to hear. Uh, <laughs> Matt's a- so angry right now. <laughs> um, the, uh, the audio, for whatever godforsaken reason, uh, decided just to use the uh, our, our audio uh, is, is just of the audio from the internal microphone in the camera. Our voice is going our, into in, the computer. In the computer. Yeah. So it's the camera that is literally right in front of me. Uh, but uh, the the interview uh, with Michael McRae, uh, his audio is great. And you um, can hear us. You can it hear us. Is it's just really not off. Not the, yeah. the typical quality that you'd normally hear. Uh, this is, uh, I've never, we didn't change the setting. It just happened. So thanks, Apple. Um, or Skype, whoever, whoever's at fault, um, or us, who knows? So anyway, here's, here, here's the interview. So here we go. Michael McRae, are you there? I am indeed. Awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah. Uh, honored. yeah the, uh, did you ever get called Michael McRib by any chance? McRib? No, you know, actually I don't think I got McRib. I got everything in the world but that. I got McCrary, McCray Cray, McCrary, McGray. What about McRaymond? McGruff? Nope. Um, yeah, like uh, playing high school basketball, um, I, uh, you know, my name would be in the paper every once in a while, and it was never once spelled correctly. <laughs> Just, and it's still, it still is one of those things. Like, I'll get emails from people. It's either McRae or it's Michael. People will send me an email and they'll misspell my name, even though they can see it in the email address. Or the worst to me is on Facebook, where they'll write to me on my Facebook wall, where you can clearly see my name, and they'll still spell it incorrectly. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a thing. Uh, so, yeah, my whole life. Yeah, I, I uh, typed in your name because I was I was looking for a bio, and it it immediately went to somebody else. And it wasn't even the spelling that I put in. It was a totally different spelling. So Google doesn't even... You know, <laughs> Google doesn't, doesn't even know who you are. Yeah. No, I, I will never be famous. <laughs> we'll start calling you McRib. That'll get you. No, right. let's not. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah. No, we're not yeah. doing Let, that. Let's talk about how the first minute and a half of this interview has been us <laughs> raking him over the coals over his name. I apologize. Nobody, nobody said we were professional. Um... The book is called I Am Not Your Enemy, and dude, I'm going to be honest with you, this book blew my doors off when I read it. I, uh, we, get, we get a lot of books sent to us, and, and some, of them are, some of them are better than others. Um, to say this book is timely would be an understatement, um, and there were a lot of moments where I was like, oh, I've never thought of that before. Um, a lot of moments like that in the book. So before we even jump into the book, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of... Um, you know, where you come from, how you grew up. Uh, who do you think you are? Yeah, who do you think you are, basically? <laughs> who do you think you are? Reminds me of The Office. Yes, that's office. exactly, that's what exactly from, where it comes yeah. from, yeah. <laughs> I was literally downstairs watching Parks and Recreation before I came up here. Nice. Awesome. My kids are, my two oldest kids are watching that right now. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, thank you very much for your compliments on the book. Uh, I really appreciate that, and thanks for taking the time to read it. 
Uh, a bit about myself. Um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, um, married to a wonderful woman named Brittany, and we just had our first child a month ago. Um, Ooh, congratulations. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Getting adjusted to being, uh, being a father. His name is Rowan. Oh, um, nice. That's a great name. Yeah, we really Rowan Campbell McRae is his name. So um, Rowan is, it comes from her side of the family. Campbell's the county in Tennessee I grew up in, and so um, we wanted to name him after people we love and places we love. Uh, that's the name of a senator. Like, that's a future senator right there. I just, I just imagine him with a pipe in his mouth. <laughs> I, we were trying to set him up for success. We thought, you know, he could go, he can move to Ireland, you know, where our ancestry is, and be mm-hmm. fine. He could go into Appalachia where I grew up and be R.C. McRae, and he'd be just fine too. And yeah. So he's he's got it made, you know. Yeah, you really put some thought into that. That's good stuff. Oh, right? totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I uh, I am, most of my work, I think it, I would say, would be in, in narrative practice and storytelling in some way. Um, that's taken a lot of different forms uh, in the last few years. Um, I consistently run a monthly storytelling night for people to tell true stories on stage. Uh, for the last year and a half until the beginning of May, when I, I quit the job so to become a father, um, I was um, running a regional hub for a global nonprofit called Narrative Four that uses story exchanges, personal story exchanges to build empathy between people. And I'm now working as a consultant for them. And I'm getting involved with a program called the Storytelling Leader that helps organizations tell the stories that define them. And so just a lot of different work in in storytelling. Um but my real passion around storytelling is ha- where it intersects with peace building. So I, uh, I have a master's degree in conflict resolution and reconciliation. I lived in Belfast in uh, Northern Ireland or the north of Ireland um, for that program and um, have grown up going to Israel and the West Bank um, since I was 11. And um, so I, I, have this, I have a really uh, strong passion for understanding where how to use stories specifically um, in service of transcending division and reconciling relationships and reducing harm and healing trauma. Um, and so, um, yeah, and so I think that's, that's really what this book is about. It was a, it was a time when I, I got to um, take a few months and travel through Israel and Palestine and Northern Ireland and South Africa to talk to as many people as I could about their their stories of, of living in divided societies, their stories of losing loved ones, their stories of suffering trauma, and how it is that they're finding a way to live together so that those conversations might uh, offer some bit of guidance for us in the United States as we are increasingly becoming uh, aware of how deeply divided we are. Um, and so to say, well, sometimes it's helpful to look at an unfamiliar place, like somewhere overseas, in order to see the truth about what is actually right next to us. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's just a sort of an entry to the book, but I think, um, uh, my, um, yeah, my work is mostly just around narrative practice and retreats for people and, and just how do we, how do we come into a full awareness of our own stories and where those stories intersect with the, the needs and, um, and pain of the world. Um, where, so, so do you have like a favorite, like modern storyteller? Is there anyone that really has been influential, somebody that got you into storytelling that, that really spoke to you? Yeah, my grandmother. <laughs> so, nice. Um, yeah, you know, there I didn't I didn't grow up kind of with um with kind of one, you know, kind of like folklore kind of storyteller. It was really it was family. It was my my grandmother was the keeper of the of the family stories and you know, she grew up in, in poverty in, in the south of Tennessee and then married my granddad, who was an archaeologist, and they spent 61 years traveling the world, 
you know, archaeological digs in Israel and all oh, over the man. place. And, um, uh, he, um, yeah, so they, she has these incredible stories and they become sort of like family liturgy. Um, so I, that's how I really grew up with those, with the love of stories. But then I mean, as a kid, you know, it's Disney and it's things like that that really make you kind of come realize the way in which stories can make things come alive. And I was a kid that always, um, my parents had to be really careful about what movies my brother and I watched because the moment <laughs> I saw a movie, I would go act it all out. And so, uh, I definitely injured myself more than once trying to jump off something to, fl- to trying to pretend like I could fly after watching Peter Pan. And which one know, of you was ET in the uh, bike bucket? <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I, 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 for me, family really was the big influencer. My dad was also a, a small town practice family doctor, and um, he ran a federally um, qualified health center in a small little town in, in East Tennessee where I grew up. And he used to, uh, we'd have students who would come from Nashville for alternative spring breaks to kind of see how small town medicine worked. And my, uh, my dad, the middle of the week, would always gather them at the clinic, and he would share these stories about things that had happened with uh, interactions he had with patients that kind of exposed the trauma of, uh, of poverty in Appalachia. And, um, and I remember just growing up hearing these stories and just being really struck by, um, by the power of hearing stories that you wouldn't normally hear, you know, and yeah. what, what can happen and what can move and, and shake within us when we, um, when we kind of open ourselves to what, People on, I'll use the language, from below have experienced, which is language that comes from a, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who yeah. yep. was a German theologian, died in, I think it was 1942, yeah. he was killed by the Nazis, but he wrote a um, he wrote a, a letter from, he's a book, there's a book that was published posthumously called um, Letters and Papers from Prison, mm-hmm. but he says in there that it is, uh, yeah, you probably read it, so he's, but um, uh, he says it is of an incomparable value that we come to see the events of world history from below, from the perspective of those who... Uh, are suspect and maltreated, oppressed and reviled, in short, from the perspective of those who suffer. Um, and so I got that really early on from uh, from where I grew up and my dad's work. And, and I think it really formed me and I continued on to study history in college, but to study it from the perspective of the people that lost, so to speak, to, you know, to study colonial America from the perspective of women, people who were enslaved and Native Americans, not the white men that wrote it. And um, and I think that was really influential in why I decided to pursue that kind of storytelling and peace building. Yeah, I mean, I, I was totally expecting like Joseph Campbell, Kurosawa, Robert McKee, those types of, of, of answers. But that's way, nope, way grandma. better. Grandma's way better answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Joseph Campbell's great, too. Robert McKee I also really love. So, um, yeah. you, can't, you can't be Granny, though. Yeah, that's yeah. Gran- Granny's so number one. Granny yeah. trumps all yeah. <laughs> in everything. Yeah. Um, you start off in the week. We spent a lot of time talking about the introduction to the book, um, but there's a couple things in the intro that I, I think I we really need to talk about because I, I found them interesting. Mm. The, the first thing, and we'll I'll do them separately here. The first thing is you, you didn't set out to write a book when you started traveling mm. to all these areas you mentioned to you know to Israel, Palestine, <clears throat> uh, South Africa, and the Northern, North, Ireland. Northern Ireland. Can you just talk about like? <laughs> Like, did you just wake up one day and you're like, I think I'll write a book about this? I mean, what was the genesis of this that finally convinced you to to finally write all this stuff down? Yeah, I um, yeah. for those listening, you know, when I started this project, it was just an educational collaboration with um, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. Um, mm-hmm. And um, 
So we were just basically going to do this kind of reverse model of a visiting scholar where I was going to, instead of basically bringing a scholar to campus for the semester, you send the person abroad and then the students interact with their travels. And um, and so this was the project that I pitched to say, I want to go and, and gather these kinds of stories in these places. And TCU was like, great. Um, and so I started going and, and I had a few conversations lined up. There were a few folks that I knew that I wanted to try to talk with and Mostly what I had was organizations that I respected and was in touch with. And then when I basically when I got on the ground, um, they had people suggested, you know, for me to talk with. And um, but then there was a lot of serendipity as well. And, um, you know, so there was the very first story in the book is with a guy named Ali Abu Awad. And I knew I wanted to talk with him. But when I was sitting with him, when we were done talking, he told me, you know, you really need to talk to this guy named Rami Al-Hanan. And then he pulled out his phone and sent this guy Rami a text. Uh, Rami's story is the last chapter in the book. And so that was very serendipitous. And I was like, oh, great. So then I went and talked to Rami and Rami said, you need to talk to this guy named Bassam. And so then on Bassam and Bassam is the other part of the last chapter in the book. So some of it was planned and some of it I just sort of stumbled into it through connections. And, and I think it was, it was probably when I was, when I was leaving Israel and Palestine, I was there about a month. And when I was leaving to fly to Belfast, I thought, you know, there's something there's something special about these conversations and I don't know what to do with them yet, but there's, there's just something here. And then I think it was really after when I, when I was leaving Cape town. So that was at the end of my trip and I was flying home. Um, I had the, one of the last conversations I had was with a, a woman named Eleanor at the um, Institute for justice and reconciliation. And the chapter is called when reconciliation means nothing. It's very relevant for what's happening in the United States today. Um, and you know, we had this whole conversation about the limits of reconciliation and where it intersects with justice. And I just remember thinking, this is the stuff that white folks I know back home need to be listening to and to and talking about. And um, I think that was sort of the thing that pushed me over the edge. And I was like, you know, this actually, um, you know, I, I, I know that I get this published somewhere and um, I need to use I want to use that platform to amplify these voices. And and I always am really careful to say this is not about giving voice to the voiceless. I personally don't don't like that phrase uh, because these <clears throat> individuals have powerful voices and they're being heard in a lot of places. It's just to say I have a platform also and I can help amplify these and, and what in some way. And so I want to just kind of add put a megaphone to their to their uh, to their mouths and um yeah, so it, there wasn't sort of this real epiphany. It was sort of a gradual awakening to it. But the reality from and it's always complicated. I, I, I do a whole kind of bit at the beginning of the book about the ethics of this kind of storytelling, which yeah. I think is really important to talk about. And it's why I put it at the very front, um, yeah, because I am a, a white male. Yeah, and that's that's the second thing I had for the introduction was that you, you talk about the, the your awareness of the risk of, you know, a white man co-opting people's stories for you know, his yeah. own gain. You know, we've talked about this podcast and on the podcast and just off of it together. That if we, I mean, we've been doing this. We're in our fifth year. We've been doing this for four years now. If if we came to today, we wouldn't do this because we don't need more white voices. You know, I mean, we yeah. we just we don't need more white guys doing podcasts. Um, right. And that that you talking about that really struck me. Just keep just expand on that just a little bit because I thought it was really important for you to say that in the very yeah. beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Um, it's a, it is a really it's a tough battle, you know, when uh, when you have a platform that's available to you, whether that's through a blog, through a podcast, through the ability to publish books, um, 
then how do you use it responsibly? Some would say, you know, as a white person, you just need to abdicate that and, and give it up, um, which that's that's one argument, but it doesn't guarantee that somebody else really fills that platform. And um, and then others might say that, you know, you, you use it to, to broadcast the, the right messages. And, and so most of my work so far has been trying to elevate stories that I think um, need to be heard. So like the book that I did right before this, it's called Where the River Bends, and it's uh, it highlights 14 stories of uh, men and women in Tennessee prison and what they what their lives and um, their own stories have to teach about uh, forgiveness, what we can learn about forgiveness from their own experiences. And the vast majority of those stories are, are in their voices. You know, I just sort of play, leave those um, out there for the for the reader. Um, and and I wanted to do a similar thing here is to just say I was given a gift of these individuals taking time to tell me their stories and it feels it feels selfish and actually feels irresponsible to just be the only person that got to hear that um because the there's there's a lot more here um and so but then i recognized that part of the complication was is that my name was going to be on the front of the book um i would be getting paid in advance i would be making royalties from the book you know it's, it's not very much money at all but it's it's sure, some money sure. um and uh, so how do I how do I deal with that? And so the way that I dealt with it uh, was just to uh, I paid uh, um, every person that is in the book. I paid them an honorarium uh, from my advance. Um, I uh, am donating here on out a portion of all the royalties I make to each of the organizations that I partnered with while I was there. Um, and then whenever I wrote the stories, uh, whenever I finished writing the stories, I sent them to each person who's in the book and they got to make some changes and, um, and then finally signed off on it. And then once they signed off on it, then I was done editing and that's what went in the book. And so I have their full consent. They got paid for their work. Um, and, um, and, and so that felt to me, um, that felt to me like good practice. I don't know if it is the best way to do it, but, um, I'm not yet convinced that because I am a white person, I therefore have nothing that needs to be said. Um, I actually think it's important for for white people who are who have platforms to be talking about issues of justice and um, you know to to basically. And I knew that my audience for this book was not people of color. Like I didn't write this book to an audience of people of color. I don't think people of color have a lot they need to hear from me. Um, I wrote it for you know basically white semi-progressive Christians, basically the, the, the demographic of which I am a part to say, you know, we need to hear these, we need to talk about the limits of dialogue and our kind of obsession with dialogue. And why are, why do we, why are we so interested in dialogue and not so interested in things like liberation or decolonization? Um, and so I do think those are conversations that white people need to be having with each other, uh, as opposed to expecting people of color to do the work for us. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, Dialogue. So why, I, I think you hear that a lot, maybe, I don't know if it's just the media, but maybe, I don't know, but, you know, the idea that, you know, what we need is just a national dialogue. Like, why is a, di a dialogue the goal? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I suppose there are probably lots of reasons for it, but I think that the main thing is, I, I think there is some, like, there's a genuineness to it for a lot of people that they say, um, you know, there it's a key component of conflict resolution, the ability to have open and honest and, and courageous dialogue. So it's not like it's unimportant. Uh, and I was trying to be really careful in the book to say I'm not diminishing the importance of dialogue. Um, but what dialogue can't be is the ultimate goal, because when when we talk about dialogue as the goal, 
Um, then once we have reached the time when we have our dialogue, then we're done. And so in the first conversation in the book, this gentleman, this Palestinian peace builder, Ali, is saying, you know, dialogue is just the, the, the carrier toward freedom. It's the vehicle. we. It's one of the vehicles that we use to get us toward freedom and liberation and equality. So and I think white folks, especially in the U.S. around issues like race, have tended to say, and I don't know how many times I've heard that, you know, if we could all just sit down and talk, work this out. And it's like, well, what does the working it out look like then? Because sitting down and talking is, is, is good, but then there's needs, something needs to take place after that. You know, yeah. you know in peace building, there's, they talk about how um, um, a, uh, the, the peace agreement uh, is, is not actually peace. It's just an agreement to work for peace, right? So um, dialogue is sort of the same. Like when you, when you when we have dialogue, that's not that's not the resolution. It's a conversation about how we're going to resolve <laughs> the issues that are dividing us, how we're going to deal with it. And um, and so I think, you know, now, you know, we see this now with what's happening all across the country is that a lot of white folks are saying, you know, our task is to kind of, you know, is to educate ourselves, which is important, of course. And, you know, here's the, here are the books that we need to be reading, all of which are important. But it's also you know, part of the thing is, but all that reading and educating is supposed to be teaching us how to engage this moment right now, <laughs> like what we're, what we're doing. And so it's, the answer can't always be, oh, we just need to talk more or we just need to read more. It's like, yeah, at some point that's supposed to be driving you toward actually taking compassionate action to make the world better. Um, and so I think that's Ali's point in the book. And that's what I'm trying to, to make the point I'm trying to make as well is, it's just to kind of call our attention to the limits of it, not to say that we need to toss it out, but to say it just needs to be put in its place. And it is one of the tools that we need, but it is not the ultimate goal. Right, right. I mean, I guess it seems like, I think maybe that now that I think about it, after hearing you talk about it, it almost seems, and I think I've probably been guilty of this <clears> in the past. Of, you have. <laughs> um, you know, the idea that, I think maybe I have at times in my life have seen dialogue as the ultimate goal. And mm -hmm. I think what that actually is, is just laziness to, for, I think, especially white people to stay disengaged from and, and change. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it's a lot easier to have a dialogue than it is to have the dialogue and then change your damn mind about something. And, you're, oh. and not just your mind, your behavior. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and that's what Ali says as well. He's like, it's it's not the, um, you know, it's it's not sort of the ideas of of the Israeli army or the Israeli public that's occupying me. It's their behavior. So like, yeah. the dialogue yeah. is great, but what I need that dialogue is only useful to me. And that's what I think people need to hear. It is only useful if it leads to a change in behavior. You know, um, but what usually happens is that so just to talk about you know race in the United States, white folks go to some kind of interracial dialogue. And then they leave saying, oh, my gosh, you know, like I showed up for the dialogue. Yeah, I, have I done, did it. I have I, done my part. Yeah, like I, I yeah, am now yeah. I passed the test. No longer a racist. Exactly. And it's like, no, like that was supposed to kind of give you a sense of <clears throat> what work is that you're supposed to do, um, you know, and to help you realize more fully the injustice that's at work so that you know how to get involved. But if all you're doing is showing up at dialogue sessions, you're arguably not actually doing a lot. And. You could even make the argument that you're perpetuating the problem because what you're doing is is basically continuing to give yourself a, 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 like an opt out. You know, you're, you're giving yourself an escape hatch to just be like, my work will be to just to show up for dialogue. But if that's not leading to a change in behavior, then we're just perpetuating the problem. And then therefore the dialogue actually becomes part of the problem. Um, so.
That'll fetch you a priest. Amen to that. All of that. Yeah. Um, Conversation today. Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the more eye-opening discoveries in this book is, you know, you spent your time in Palestine and Israel, obviously. There's nothing going on there. It's fine. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's a very calm place. Not yes. a lot. Of, yeah. yeah, over-exaggerated in the press. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you talk about you and your time, your time over there, that you realize that PTSD isn't a thing over there, and there's a very specific reason. And I wanted to talk about this because I think it's very important right now because I think the case could be pretty easily made that the black community in America is going through the very same thing, as well yeah. as other marginalized communities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was I was um, meeting with. Um, a center uh, just inside Bethlehem called uh, the WEAM Center, uh, and the center director is a man named Zugbi Zugbi. And um, nice, I know it's great. Uh, and he um, he was talking about the work that they do at the center, and he at one point said that we um, uh, that we don't teach trauma healing here. And I remember thinking, like, that's a bit bizarre because you're a conflict transformation center and you're in occupied Palestine. How on earth are you not dealing with trauma healing? And he said, it's because there, um, we have no PTSD, uh, which I again thought was weird. I was like, your whole, your whole, you know, society is traumatized. Um, but he said, it's not PTSD because there is no post trauma. He's, you know, PTSD is the idea that the trauma is over, but it is still showing up in your life in various ways. But it's, it's something you can heal from because, you know, war, the war is no longer happening, so to speak, in PTSD Mm -hmm. and veterans. But he's saying, no, like the, 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 the trauma that young people face when they are you know, harassed by soldiers at a checkpoint, that happens the next day and then the next day and then the next day. And um, there are always more people being arrested, more people being killed. And so we, we never have an opportunity for the trauma to be post. It is always ongoing. And therefore, we have to teach people how to cope with their trauma because they're never they do not have the opportunity to heal from it. Um, that is just that devastating. It, it was. I mean, I just remember kind of feeling like a weight had just been placed on top of my chest and um, and which was amazing because, you know, this trip when I did the, these conversations, I think was my 12th time to go. I had lived in the West Bank for uh, a summer and lived in the West Bank for three months and, and during the winter one time and had worked for Christian peacemaker teams doing nonviolent direct action. You know, I'd written thesis on the conflict. I was speaking in church. I mean, I was very well versed in all this stuff. But it had never hit me quite that way. Like we have no PTSD, which is what I ended up calling the chapter. And um, and uh, yeah, and I and I even say in the book, like, where all is this true then back home? Because that was always the point for me was to say I'm not. I'm interested in the stories overseas for sure, for the sake of of the stories themselves. But what I'm really interested in is saying what do these stories have to tell us about where I'm from, about my own home, because. I don't live in Israel and Palestine. I go there often, but I don't live there. It's not my conflict. You know, I, I don't live in Northern Ireland. I don't live in South Africa. I live in Nashville in the South that has a hell of a history uh, of trauma and divided societies and conflict and oppression. So if I'm not taking these lessons and applying them back home, I am absolutely wasting my time. Um, and so that was that was the question to say, yeah. And I think we're seeing this now. Like this is... What is happening in Minneapolis, what is happening, you know, even here in Nashville, the National Guard was called to, you know, to a um, protest and it's happening all over the place. And this is this is what happens. The entire society um, has no post-trauma because the trauma is ongoing because they are constantly. And now they're watching. It's not just knowing that your loved ones are being killed, the people who look like you are being killed. It's having those videos go viral and meaning your newsfeed constantly. Um to see, 
oh, yeah, somebody who looks like me could be stopped at any moment by a police officer and killed. And that could happen. And there would likely nothing nothing will likely happen to the officers. You know, like that is absolutely traumatizing. And eventually, you know, when you have a knee on someone's neck long enough, uh, metaphorically or literally, um, people break. And um, and that, that's what's happened in Palestine. There have been two major intifadas, you know, uh, uh, uprisings. One was mostly a civil civil disobedience um, in, the, in the 90s, and then one was filled with bombings in the early 2000s. And, and, I, and I think we're kind of on, we're looking at possibly an, a kind of an intifada here in the United States as well, an uprising of people saying, we're done, enough is enough, um, you know. Boy, God, it's just, it's so heavy, man. It's so, that, so heavy. That, I think of all the things you wrote in that book, I think that chapter affected me the most because of that whole concept of, yeah, it's not post-trauma. It's ongoing. Yeah, it's it's a never-ending thing, day after day. You know, I've read stories of you know, uh, of black people who keep their driver's license registration in their visor so they don't have to reach to their pocket. That's something I never have had to worry about. I don't have to worry about that. That's crazy. I get pulled over. I just I'm like, oh crap, I got pulled over. I don't have to worry about. Oh, is this my? Is this when I die? Yeah. And that oh, is yeah. an, that is an ongoing thing for the black community. I mean, it's just it's just. Yeah, and I think it. I mean, you know, obviously, since your you know your focus is on lit, on stories, I mean, I know personally that's the only reason I have changed my mind on numerous issues over the last ten to fifteen years. Yeah, you know, we all mm-hmm. all three of us grew up conservative Christian, Republican, very very conservative. Um, you know, fifteen years ago. I would have looked at what's happening right now in a completely different light, but I started actually having friends that were black or friends that were gay or whatever, and listen, really listening to their stories and going, "Oh, this is not, this isn't a, a like a liberal talking point. This is real. Yeah. Like yep. these are real people. I can't deny if this person is my friend, I can't call this person a liar." I can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, just mm-hmm. because it's so far out of the realm of my experience mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And that, man, that's what you're seeing. I mean, God, I had a just a conversation on Facebook I'm having right now, with, not right now during the interview, but like today. <laughs> it's not even paying attention. Today, <laughs> with, the, with the guy that I've known for, I mean, we, we don't live anywhere close, but we were friends a few years ago. And he's like, but here, what I don't understand is like, well, how why would you change the system? He said, from the, from my side, I like the system works. And I'm like, right. Yep. <laughs> from your side. Like, that's the fucking point. Sorry. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, worked up. I mean, I am because it's just like, dude, you got to start listening to, to the, like a voices of oppressed people. They can't all be lying, man. Like, yeah. God, like you, if, where there's smoke, there's fire. And when there's, thousands and thousands of these stories of people saying the same thing you have to start going how maybe my thinking is wrong on this you know and it's just yeah and yeah i think that that's the um yeah i mean i think that is that's spot on this this awareness of um uh you know could i could i have been wrong it's one i talk about like that um I talk about it a little bit in the book, but it, um, uh, it's going to show up in my next one as well, which I'll have to talk about because I think you'll 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 appreciate it. But the idea that to, to really kind of um, transform ourselves and our thinking and, and kind of dismantle the notion of other and an enemy, 
that we need we need three things. One is proximity. We have to actually get closer to the yep. thing that we're afraid of or the thing that we're judgmental of. Um, but that that won't be enough um, because for most of human history, proximity is all you needed in order to be able to kill each other. Right? You had to get within firing range, <laughs> within yep. stabbing distance. Um, and so you also need curiosity. You need the ability to ask questions, to wonder. Um, but then the, the final thing that you'll need is, is humility, the, to hold an awareness of, to be able to ask the question of yourself, has it ever occurred to me that I might be wrong? Um, and if you, if you don't have those, I don't think you have a lot of chance of transformation. You know, a lot of people get closer, uh, to, to, uh, I spend a lot of time working in prison and, um, you know, there's a lot of proximity between prison officers and prisoners, and there's not a whole lot of affection. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's not a lot of curiosity and there's very little humility. There aren't that many officers wondering whether they might have been they might be wrong about all they've assumed um, about the inhumanity of the people that they're overseeing. Um, and so I think I think you're right on there. And but I think the other piece that's that's, um, you know, that, that is really complicated for us is and I was talking about it with Eleanor in the chapter on uh, when reconciliation means nothing is the question of incentivizing white people into the conversation on justice. Uh, because uh, in the case of, you know, your friend that you're talking about who's saying, you know, look, from my side, this is working great. There's a degree to which he knows then that there's another side. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's aware uh, that there's another side. So it's not just like, well, how do we get you to listen to the other side? It's like you, you clearly know something. The problem is you don't care very much because the system is benefiting you. And so your natural self-preservation is kicking in. Everyone has that instinct. Why on earth would I want to challenge something that is that is helping that is making my life better? And and that's that's the challenge is like this whole system of white supremacy or capitalism or whatever we're going to, you know, call the various kind of um, components of it work really well in favor of a a white privileged kind of show up and have a conversation, have a real honest dialogue um, and be willing to change behaviors when that means that something is likely, that they're likely going to lose some power, they're going to lose some privilege, they won't have access to the same things they had access to. Like, what is what is going to compel people to do that? But that's where I think uprisings like what we're seeing come into play, just to say, yeah, that's, that's a really hard thing to just invite you to so we're we're gonna have to start taking the streets and burning some stuff because that because if 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 nothing else maybe the fear uh will drive you to to these conversations and so it's it is really hard to to know what to how how do we invite people into a space where something really difficult is going to be asked of them yeah Um, and i and i struggle with i struggle with that too because it's like like you shouldn't you, you shouldn't have to be incentivized to give a shit about this. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, we're talking about we're talking about people, man. Like, we're talking about actual human beings. And I think, you know, I think yeah. that's that's the conclusion that I've come to with myself is that I just have to understand. I have to admit that for years I really just didn't give a shit. And and I never yeah. would have I never would have said because that. it didn't affect you. Be- but it yeah. didn't affect you. It's yeah. like. Because it wasn't it wasn't personal, but now I have enough friends that are black or enough friends that are gay that have been oppressed for, in different ways. Like that, it's like yeah, like they're they're actual people. They're not 
they're not like a, a, a political talking point. Yeah, not, not to say that they're they're subhuman. But no, like, no, that's what but, I mean. But to like, say like you see their faces, exactly. you know their it, yes their personhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, and that's you know you can see it in the conversations I have in the book that um, with Israelis with Palestinians with whoever a, a, a central um, turning point for so many people is the is when when they got close enough to hear the human stories of the other and realize these are actual human people with lives and and tears and loved ones and it's that it's that humanizing aspect um which isn't to say that you know necessarily that growing up i would have um demonized a gay person though possibly would have or or a black person or anything like that uh, but it is it is to say that they weren't fully human because i did not yeah. i did not have any true understanding of the complexity of an individual's life. It was black people or gay people. Like it was just sort of this a monolithic like, group. Yeah. Right. It's just this monolithic unnuanced subgroup yeah. that I had no. And, and that's when things changed for me. Like you're saying, when suddenly I, when I learned that my aunt was gay well, when I was 16 years old, and I was like, wait, but I love my aunt. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's that simple. It, in yeah. some ways it sounds silly, but it's like, that's, that's the stuff that can, that can change people. And, um, this, you guys may know a guy named Shane Claiborne. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's great. And he, he told me once, he said, um, he said we, we, we can rarely ever argue people into new ways of thinking, but we can story them. Um, and that's really stuck with me. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Okay, so this has been a lot of real heavy stuff. Let's take a brief uh, intermission here <laughs> of something. You spent a lot of time at the, or spent some time at the Al Bosma Center, uh, Special Rehabilitation Center. <laughs> Yes. Can you just talk about their work and what you personally take away from them? It's just a really, like you mentioned in the book, it's just a really great, it seems like a really awesome place. The best. It's the best. Um, yeah, I, I've gone to, yeah, it's, so it's called the Albasma Center for the Developmentally Disabled. Uh, Albasma in Arabic means the smile. So this is a center awesome. uh, founded by um, a man named Abdullah Awad, who, um, who had returned from Libya. He, he's from Palestine, from a small town outside Bethlehem called Beit Sahur. And he had returned from working in Libya and um, wanted to address the needs of his community. And um, one of the needs that he found was a really high rate of developmental disabilities. There's a lot of uh, intermarriages between um, second and third cousins uh, in, um, in the West Bank and in uh, other nations around there as well. Um, and and so there's a higher rate of developmental disabilities. And um, for many of the families, they simply did not know kind of what to do with these children. And so some of them were abandoned and some of them were neglected. And some of them, of course, were, were cared for and loved. Um, but Abdullah said, we need a center to kind of take these children in. And so he started the Albasma Center. It's been around for a little over 30 years, if I remember right. Um, but it's run by Christian and Muslim women um, who... Uh, have very, very small salaries, but who are there because they deeply love the work. And they bring in around 30 or so um, students, they call them, ranging anywhere from 16 years old to 50 years old. Um, and they, they have all kinds of amazing programs that they do. They teach them um, how to uh, weave and make uh, rugs on the loom, how to make uh, Christmas cards from recycled um, paper, how to make olive wood ornaments, and then turn the sawdust from the olive wood into um, uh, into like a fuel that can heat the center. They have an aquaponics garden. They do music therapy. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely extraordinary, this place. And uh, I've gone on every trip that, uh, that I've made to Palestine since probably 2010. 
And I spent a summer in 2010 volunteering. So I spent uh, three months uh, in Beit Sahur at, at El Basma. Um, and my family's been leading tours as well for a while. Uh, we call them McRae tours. And so um, like just in June, we took um, we took 50 people, 50 Christians to see the Holy Land, but to also, as we say, walk where Jesus walked, but also to walk as Jesus might walk. How might Jesus talk about Palestine today? What would he care about? And But we always take people to Al Basma. And so far on every trip, most people will leave saying, you know, obviously the places where they were, the Jesus places were pretty important to them. But they will say that <laughs> Abbasma was was one of the most impactful stops that that we make because it's the the young the students are just so full of life and love and and it's it's a place where I I remember really having this awareness that um, um, there are limits to communication, but there aren't necessarily limits to affection, and that you don't actually have to speak the same language. Because uh, they speak Arabic, I speak English. We we can't communicate with each other, and then many of them don't have the very strong verbal skills anyway. Even if I spoke Arabic, um, you know, some young people with severe Down syndrome, and we couldn't really we couldn't speak to one another at all. And we spent an entire summer not being able to say more than a couple of words to each other at a time. But there was genuine love. And after ten years, when I go back, when I walk in that that door, they'll turn and see me, and they'll yell, "Mike!" and they'll. <laughs> will run and jump in my, I mean, they have jumped in my arms and they'll kiss in my face and you're like baptized in this whole new like religion of love through their saliva and, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and it, it was this sense of like, we don't actually have to speak the same language to love one another. Like what is needed is to just, is to be present, to be, to pay attention um, and then to, to come back, like to just keep showing up. And I think when you, when you are present with, with focus and attention and affection, and you come back again and again, then you're really able to communicate uh, love, and people feel it. Um, so it's one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, yeah I can see why. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, the, one of the other things I found really eye-opening in that book is you talk about the post-conflict healing journey, you know, mm. how you know, I mean, essentially slavery, the the oppression of the black community, it's been going on for. Mm, roughly 350-ish years. Um, and so and you basically make the point that like, you don't heal that overnight. Right. Can you can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how we underestimate how long the journey actually is and, um, and just kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so there's a theory in peace building that it can take as long to kind of get out of a conflict as it took to get in it. Um you know, in recovery circles, they say things like if you drive 20 miles into the wood is 20 miles back out. Um, I mean that like if, you know, if I spent 30 years as an alcoholic, then I'm not going to be an, a non-alcoholic in a year of recovery. You know, like right. it takes it takes a very long time to unlearn these practices, um, these behaviors and, and um, these habits. And and the same is true in a, in a conflict. And so you can look at, you know, as I was talking this. Uh, theory I'm, I'm talking about in the book is in the context of Northern Ireland. And so saying, depending on who you ask, there is 800 years or 400 years or 30 year conflict. Um, and so either way you spin it, you know, the Good Friday Accord that ended the troubles in Northern Ireland was in 1998. So you're not even you're not even if, if it's only a 30 year conflict, you're not 30 years out from that. So you're still right. this sort of healing journey if it takes as long to get out as it took to get in. But what I find really useful about that is then to turn that, um, kind of take that framework and put it here in the United States and to say, you know, there's so many folks in the U.S., mostly white people, 
who will, you know, say, why can we not stop talking about race? I mean, for goodness sake, you know, the, you know, black people have had the same rights as us since the 1960s. And for goodness sake, Barack Obama was president for two Like, we are done. Now, I don't hear them saying that as much now that we have Donald Trump. But, um, you know, uh, there but there was there's still a sense of being like this wouldn't be a problem if we stopped talking about it. And what I just find really helpful about that theory is saying there's any way you spin it. You know, if you look at um, if you look at the fact that, you know, as I say in the book, you know, if you if we take this only from. If we kind of call racism in the United States a conflict, just for the sake of this argument, we just call it a conflict and we only take that from the arrival of the first kidnapped Africans up to the Civil Rights Act, then you're talking 1619 to 1964, which is 345 years. Um, and so, like, we, we're we not even close yeah. <laughs> to being – we're at the very, very beginning of – this sort of quote unquote post conflict healing journey. Yes. And clearly you can see we're not in any kind of post conflict journey. We're still very much in the conflict. Um, but so it's just to say like, even if everything had been resolved and with the civil rights act, like we still would be very much like in our first couple of steps walking out of those woods. Um, and so on the one hand that can feel really overwhelming to me to be like, holy hell, like we're, we're not going to be done with this and we're definitely not going to be done with this in my lifetime. Like, and in, not in my, not in Rowan's lifetime, my son or probably his kids, like it's not going to be done, um, which is overwhelming. Yeah. And then on the other hand, I think there's also something, um, helpful about it to say, you know, look, um, well, let me tie it in. There's a, there's a, uh, an archbishop. <clears throat> who was assassinated a long time ago, a name Oscar Romero. Yeah, um, yeah. And he has a prayer. Where he says, um, um, he says, we are ministers and not messiahs. Um, you know, we, we cannot do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in that because it allows us to do something and to do that something very well. Um, and we are not called um, to resolve all the issues of the world. We are called to contribute to their healing. And, um, and so that's been helpful for me, not in a way. And what you have to what I have to be careful on is not letting that feel like a cop out then to me as a white person. Be like, oh, yeah, I don't actually have to fix this. So I can just <laughs> back. Yeah. It's like, oh, um, what the challenge is, is to say you're not our white savior. Um, so, you know, simmer down, buddy. You know, like you're not going right. to you're not going to solve this issue, Mr. White Man. You know, and and there's a, there's a liberation in that for me to say, yeah, it's not my call to solve this issue, but I. My call, what my call is, is to continue the work and to be part of moving this along because we're not going to make it out of those woods if we don't all continue to take those steps toward the, you know, toward the open field or, you know, we can beat that metaphor down, I guess. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think there's a way to see that, that theory as something that can really help us. Um, but there's a, there's a risk in, in using it as a way to kind of uh, let ourselves off the hook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the illusion that that you know we and our enemies need to find like a common ground consensus on every issue? Because I think that's really a, a really a kind of a hindrance to a lot of dialogue and a lot of action that could possibly take place. Of, oh, I don't agree with and it. Really, honestly, kind of seems like a progressive issue. That mm. if you don't agree with a hundred percent with me, then you're my enemy. And yeah. Instead of instead of being able to find common ground with things that are actually important and not necessarily consensus on everything. Yeah. I mean, I think I think finding consensus on everything is impossible. I don't agree with everything with my wife, and we have a very happy life together. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you. Yeah. You. You. 
you decide whether I think that's what we have to do. We have to decide like what are the things that are that are truly important that um, that where are the non-negotiables in our lives and and we have to have integrity and stick to those. And I think there are times there are things that are irreconcilable differences. Like there there are times when couples do have to divorce, and there are times when families can't stay together, and there are times when you know, uh, societies kind of break apart. Um, you know, like, I mean, slavery was an irreconcilable difference. There's, you know, like something had to be done. Like there was no kind of agreeing to disagree on that. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, I, I think common ground has its, its, uh, its benefits. Um, but I think like to your point, I see this so often in those, these progressive liberal, whatever you want to call them circles, um, of which I would tend to say I am a part. Um, but it's this it's this dynamic of um, if um, we we could we agree on every possible platform, right? Ninety nine point five percent. But oh, wait, I'm voting for Bernie. You're voting for Elizabeth Warren. Screw you. Yeah. Go to hell yeah. like you toxic and I'm unfriending you. And it's like, what? Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's absolutely astounding. Like we're in a we're in a moment where if we are not in 100 percent alignment, um, then it's not like, oh, well that sucks that we're not in agreement. It's like you are actually problematic and toxic to my life. And I, and, and, and what's, what's amazing to me is that that is the same sort of logic in some ways as the fundamentalism that so many of us grew up in. Um, and you know, that was, that was the way of thinking, right? Like there is only one right answer and you have to be a hundred percent with us on this issue. We will have no patience for anyone who doesn't like we all have to think the same way. It's like this group think this like really rigid dogma um, and this sort of um, this like passionate adherence to this this platform um, that so many people like myself said I had no interest in that. But then what I think we ended up doing was we we took that same framework with us uh, when we left and then we just put a bunch of other stuff inside of it. And and we think then that we're different, but we're, we're not actually all that different. We we still think we're using the same thought patterns. We're just having different content inside of it. Yeah. Um, and um, now one major difference is that I think I do genuinely believe that a lot of the progressive and liberal issues are far more life giving than many of the fundamentalist conservative issues. So I, there is a big difference in the content. It's not that the content is irrelevant, um, but I do think it's problematic when that same sort of rigid um, kind of boundaries come in place that, that just say, get a hundred percent on board with me or get a hundred percent out the door. And, um, I, I don't find that very interesting and it is in no way a way of thinking that lends itself toward peace because, you know, the reality will be, and it has always been that we are always going to live with each other, right? Like, yeah, yeah. all of the Clinton supporters did not leave when Trump was elected and whenever Trump loses or, or whatever happens, um, all the people that voted for Trump aren't going to leave. Like we're all still going to live together. And so it, it cannot be the way that we're going to function to just say we have to always agree on this or we can't interact. Well, then we're going to have a really miserable existence. Um, so I think we have to find how to live. So I think common ground has its place. But I think we have to also talk about how do we live well with people who are different than us? How do we how do we find a way to see difference as something that can um, that can help us and not hurt us? Um and 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 how do we how do we find a way for it to be something that is that is enriching and not just something that is putting us all in danger? Um, and that's 
that's far easier said than done because there are legitimately some differences that are not okay, right? You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. If your position is, I mean, I, just today my sister showed me a picture of um, young white men who are doing the George Floyd challenge where oh. they are posing with other white guys with, the, with their knee on each other's neck Jeez. to see. And like, oh. so that's, like, that's the difference that's not okay. I have no interest in living well with that kind of difference. That's violent. That leads yeah. to people dying. And so like, it is important also to say those sort of things to say, not all difference is equal. Um, yeah. but I think we, we can make difference also into something that it doesn't need to be where we assume that it's, it's something that can hurt us, um, all the time. Hmm. Well, we got a couple, we got, we got about 10 minutes up around out of time here. A, a couple things I want to ask. I'd love you to expand on this phrase that I found really kind of captivating in the book. And it kind of flows from what you're just talking about. Understanding is not complicity. Understanding is just understanding. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, that is language that I got from a, uh, an Irish guy that I know named Padraig O'Tuma. Um, yeah. So oh, yeah. I'd love to have him on at some point. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people are learning about him through an amazing podcast he's doing now called Poetry on Unbound with On Being. Um, he was, um, he was the very first person I met when I moved to Ireland. And it's just fun, just short story about Padraig because he's such a lovely guy. But um, when I when I was moving to Ireland for grad school, uh, there was a guy I knew in Nashville named David Dark who had lived in Belfast some time ago. And I said, David, I'm moving to Belfast. Who should I know? And he gave me three names. And so I reached out. One of them was Padraig's. I reached out to all three people. The first person responded and said, oh, you know, I'd be happy to see you sometime when you're in town. Just shoot me a message and we'll meet up. The second person said, when are you coming in? I'd love to meet for coffee the week that you're in town so that you have something to look forward to. And then Padraig responded and said, who's picking you up from the airport? <laughs> I said, I don't know a soul in your country. And he said, I'll be there to get you. So literally, he's the first person I met when I got off the plane. I walked out the airport and there was Padraig Otuma. And we he drove me back um uh, to Belfast and um, and we became friends. He published his first book of poetry the week that I was there, and um, so we've been we've been friends ever since. And um, so anyway, uh, he's a really he's a really lovely guy. I only um, know him from his music. I, I I need to I need to get into the poetry yeah, and stuff. I need to purchase that. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's got several good books of poetry, and uh, he has a beautiful beautiful memoir called In the Shelter uh, that's really worth checking out. Um, okay. But he's. Um, yeah, he's now doing the podcast also with On Being. And he has a really lovely interview with, that Krista Tippett did with him on On Being uh, called Belonging uh, Creates and Undoes Us Both. So I highly suggest you check it out. But for about uh, for several years, he was the leader of Cory Milo, which is one of the places I feature in the book uh, in a chapter called Place of Lumpy Crossings. And I spent a month shadowing him a couple of years ago, just traveling with him all over Ireland and Scotland and England uh, to see kind of what he does. And one of the things he talked about was how uh, this idea of um, in conflict. So in, the, in in Ireland, he was talking about with Protestants and Catholics, and he said there can be this sense that um, there's a hesitancy to even sit in the room with your enemy and listen to them talk because you the fear is that if I come to a place of understanding, if I if I can get to a place of saying, okay, I understand why you took that violent action that killed my father, right? Um, if I am able to say that. Am I now somehow complicit in the death of my father? Like, am I complicit in your violence because I understand it? And so his point was just to say, no, understanding is not complicity. Understanding is just understanding. Like, that's that's all it is. It's just to say, yep, with your story, your life, your influences, your ideology, your family, you know, your religion, your culture, all these with all those things. I do understand why you have done what you've done. And 
I think it was a pretty shitty thing to do, right? Like those, right? <laughs> those yeah, yeah, yeah. Things go together. They absolutely go together. And um, but I think that's the fear that a lot of us have when we go into these dialogue sessions to say I can yield no ground because if I yield any ground, well then maybe I've been wrong about everything and everything needs to be thrown out and now I'm basically just them. And it's just to say no, like it is actually possible. It's the practice of empathy. It's just to say the world is bigger than my own conception of it. I do not have a monopoly on the truth. There are multiple truths in the world. People have their own experiences. Um, and and what my the task in, in trying to have reconciliation and find peace is to say, can I imagine the world outside of my own conception of it and, and try to understand somebody else's perspective, uh, which in no way means that I have to condone it or agree with it. I don't have to like them at the end. I can still say, I really don't like you and I have no interest in another conversation. But I do, I do understand where you're coming from, and that's been helpful to me. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we got, a, I got one more question, and then because you brought this up a little bit earlier, and then we, we want to do a lightning round if you have time for it. Um, what, so what are you working on now? You said you're working on another book. Yeah, so I'm working on actually my own life story. Um, so at the moment, I'm calling it "Leaving the Right for Whatever's Left." Um, <laughs> and, um, it's. Uh, and it's interesting as you've been talking about how you wouldn't start a podcast because we don't need more podcasts from white folks. I have literally been thinking about trying to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have resisted for such a long time doing a podcast, but I thought, you know, I think this could be interesting to have conversations with people who grew up in the yeah. right among both. And there's a play on words, obviously, and, and kind of both the language of right and left, this sense of both the, the political right, but also this way of thinking, I have the right thinking. I am in the right. Yeah. Um, and in this sense of, well, we can go to whatever is on the left or just whatever is left once we've abandoned that way of thinking. And so I thought, you know, conversations on that I think could be useful. I, I would have benefited from that. Um, and not just around politics, but also for me, a lot of it's around like the damage of, of, of purity culture and really unhelpful ways of talking about sex and sexuality and yeah. uh, the damage that that did uh, in my life. Um, and it still shows up. And so... Uh, I want the book. I'm thinking of even writing it as sort of a letter to my son, sort of like Tanahasi Coates in Between the World and Me, and as he writes a letter to his son, and sort of in that kind of um, that kind of way to say, let me tell you about what it was like to grow up where I did, and and how it is that I went from being, you know, to to being a sexist, a racist, misogynistic, homophobic person, um, and who that and those those demons still show up because you don't fully get rid of them. To then being very pro-LGBTQ, to marching in Palestine and being shot at by Israeli soldiers, to being uh, for prison and the death penalty abolition, yeah. you know, to, to working to dismantle white supremacy. Like, how is it that somebody grows up in the buckle of the Bible Belt in that kind of conservative environment and then shifts? Wow. And so I want to tell the story of uh, of that shift. And so, um, so that's what I'm that's what I'm going to start working on now. I'm currently working on the book proposal and to see if I can get a, a contract on it. But I'm really excited about it. I think um, I've spent a lot of time telling other people's stories and weaving my own into it. But I think I feel ready to say I really want to be vulnerable with the reader and, and to say, let let me really talk to you about where I come from and the yeah and how I've gotten to where I am and to kind of really do the, the work of self-analysis. Um, it's it's always scary, right, to be that <laughs> But I, I have to remind myself that and I see this all the time when I facilitate um, retreats and story circles and stuff is that we all fear fear vulnerability. But there is in my experience, true, authentic vulnerability is almost always met with deep, genuine connection. Um, people are always drawn in um, yeah. to. It. Um, and so that's what I that's what I hope will happen. Yeah. Well, I will say 
I'm going to dig in some of your other books that you've written before this, and we'll definitely have you back on when you write your other one. Yeah. Um, for sure, because I, I, I can say, I mean, it's obviously been a really heavy week or so for mm-hmm. anybody that gives a shit about other human beings. Um, mm-hmm. And I will say that the book, reading it this week and in and, and this interview has, we were a little heavy even coming into this interview just talking about some of the stuff from that's happened this week. Sure. It's done worlds for me, for my mood. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really positive. It's given me a little bit of hope. Um, you know, obviously things aren't going to change overnight, and, and there's going to be a lot of pain still. But yeah. it, it feels like there's a way forward at least. Mm. Yeah. yeah so, I, so thank you for that. Thank you very much. And we're we're going to give away uh, three copies of your book on Twitter. Uh, people just have to uh, retweet and, and follow yeah. the the pin tweet. So we'll, we'll give away three copies to people. Um, we want to to help get the word out there. Um, this book's good. You need to read this book. Yep. This is an important book. Yep, yep. Thanks. Check out check out the book. Um, also go to your website. Your website is michaelmcgray.com. Mm-hmm. Is that right? The name. Just yeah. the name. That's egotistical I am. All right. <laughs> Mike, michaelmcgray.com. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it only shows up a couple times a year, though. Weirdly, if, Michael, if you type in michaelmcgray.com, it goes to inglouriousbastards.com. <laughs> <laughs> We just redirected. We just bought it. Yeah. Redirect. Yeah. Redirect there. So the book is called I Am Not Your Enemy. Go go get it. Yep. Um, do you have time for, for a lightning round? Yeah, great. All right. Uh, what is your beverage of choice? Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and whiskey. And right. or whiskey. Wait, together? No, definitely <laughs> different. Um, <laughs> okay. Are you like bourbon or different what kind of whiskey? Oh, God. Uh, my current favorite right now is. Um, uh, is a Chattanooga whiskey that's just just opened up in, in south of Tennessee. But typically, I love anything from the island of Isla in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, um, I've heard of Chattanooga whiskey. I haven't tried it yet. So. Good. Yep. Just, just opened back up after like a hundred years since the nice. prohibition, and they just launched it again, and it's really nice. What they nice. didn't hear about prohibition before? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like they got, repealed, just got repealed in Tennessee. Yeah, might have. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite novel? Oh, that's a great one. Um, the Lord of the Rings, uh, for one, and then um, oh, Wait, what's they made a book out of that. <laughs> <laughs> they did, yeah. Is that the one with um, Elijah Wood in it? <laughs> you know, actually, I have so many favorite novels. I know this is lightning round, so I'm kind of failing at this. Um, but a book I read recently that was just absolutely fantastic was um, the book Less by um, um, by Andrew Sean Greer. It was really fantastic. Okay, okay. Uh, favorite TV show of all time? Parks and Recreation. All right. Favorite character from Parks and Recreation? Um, depends on the day, uh, but I think Ron Swanson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anything other than Ron Swanson, you're just wrong. That's like, what got me, in, that's what you, got me into Isla Scotches because he drinks Lagavulin. Lagavulin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you need to watch the show Devs on Hulu. It's, it's got uh, Nick Offerman in it. It's so good. Um, favorite uh, Star Wars film? Um, the Empire Strikes Back. How do you like your coffee? Just black, just black. Any any particular uh, blend or roast or, or origin? Um, no. But I traveled to Rwanda a couple of years ago, oh, and yeah. I brought back like I literally bought an extra suitcase to bring back bags of Rwandan coffee beans. Yeah, that's I do like Rwandan yeah. coffee. African coffees are so they're yeah. just my absolute yeah. favorite. Yeah. But we also we my wife and I went to Hawaii uh, for our anniversary last uh, October, and we found a coffee farm. Uh, on the Big Island, uh-huh. and that coffee was extraordinary. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Have you tried uh, Mule Town coffee in Nashville? 
are in in that general vicinity. Mule Town. Mule no. Town. I, it might be in Columbia. It's very good. Okay. Very very good. Cool. Um, you think here. Uh, what is the last album you listened to, start to finish? Oh mercy. Um, you know, actually, I think it is. Um, uh, Casey Musgraves. Um, what was her most recent? Um, Golden Hour. I think that was the last one. Dude, I, listened to. I have been listening to that album so freaking much. I'm not even gonna pretend. I just made it I, I love Casey Musgraves. She's amazing. Yes. It was, I go back and forth in terms of like albums that I just start and listen to. There are only a few that I go all the way through. That's one. Um, uh, Carrie and Lowell by Sukhan Steven. Oh uh, yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah, just fantastic. Like, I can't just listen to a song after, yeah, off of it. That's it's a powerful, be- powerful album. Yeah. All right, man. I think that's it. Perfect. Thank you so well, much for coming on the podcast. It's been a joy. I really appreciate y'all having this conversation. And, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks yeah, for man. Luck, man. It's good stuff. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. Talk to y'all later. All right. All right. Now that you've your seat. can tell us what you think. The five stars get red. One star is dead. To us. Listen to that fog horn, baby. <laughs> What's happening? Feedback. Uh, we have nothing on Twitter, so nothing. No, no feedback. Eh, no, whatever. no five stars. Right. It don't matter to Jesus. Yep. And what? I don't. We gonna get bright side. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. Does anybody? I, what what <laughs> fucking bright side right now? I actually have, have one this bright week. side. Are you fucking kidding me? Nobody cares. <laughs> wow. Nobody I actually cares. have one. What? No, fuck you. I don't want to tell you now. We, okay. You guys want anything bright side? I not really. No, I've been pretty dark this week, man. Yeah, it's been a kind of a shitty week, man. Okay. Go ahead and say yours. I passed my test. Good. Great. Good job. Let me let me get a pot. Let me slip to my positive. No. The uh. <laughs> here you go. What? Is, it, is that what you want? I got. I passed my test. I got. These are all my positive noises. Are you done? I can be. <laughs> the answer is no. He's not. No. Done. Anyway, whatever. Fuck it. You passed your test. I did. I passed my test. I got my raise. Yes. Good I job. did not expect that to happen. I really didn't. Yeah, you really didn't. You were in a dark spot for a while. Like two days. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. No, I wasn't. Saturday and Sunday, I wasn't. I get, like Saturday and Sunday, I was like, I'm just he's not going to get to it till at least Monday. So what's the point of like? He he hadn't even gotten it to. Oh no! By no, the no. weekend? No, 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 no. He said, oh, "I'll try to get to it Friday." Didn't get to it Friday, so I was like, "Well, I mean, I." And it wasn't that I was. It was the anticipation of like not knowing anything. Like that's what was bugging me. It's like I was just waiting to find out something. Yeah, you had resigned yourself to not. Oh, I told you, I almost gave up 20 minutes in. Like, yeah, that's how bad it was to start. And then it got a little better, apparently. And apparently, I, I, know, I know enough bullshit that I can there you go. fuck yeah. my way through a test. So, yeah. Right. But anyway, that's, it, was a, it was a significant raise. So, I'm, yeah. Sorry, I meant to do this one.
It's a celebration. Air horn celebration. Is it? Laurel. Yeah, it is. Do you, would, would you like a different celebration song? No, let's song? go on, Mike. No. Saving the world. Play the one. Play it. No. Play it. Matt's ball. There it is. So small. Beth can't see them when he's naked. Um, there's one on here that is off brand. It's it's a different person singing. I have no idea who it is, but here it is. Dead birds. Fuck yeah. That isn't cat food. It's Chinese beef jerky. Handshake. Whoa. What, what the hell is going on? I don't know. I just. I thought we had a five star review. No. Somebody said that last, last week. It's not showed up. I, I wonder so. if they use cuss words or something. Um, if you use cuss words, they won't let you post them because yeah. apparently Apple's a bunch of puritanical five-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Um, where are we going? Uh, hashtags? I don't have that many. I've got six. Yeah, I've got like five. I just, I don't know. I haven't felt super goofy this week. I don't know. Hashtag. Oh, I only have four. That's so much cream. Hashtagging. I feel it running down the back of my throat. Mm. That was you. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hashtag love a good double stuff. Yeah. You know, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Uh, hashtag. The old, the old Golden Gate. <laughs> oh. What? <laughs> Never mind. I got it figured out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure you do. Yeah, I do. You've got mail. Uh, <laughs> hashtag carpet bombing the toilet. Hashtag definitely the right hole. Oh, boy. Hashtag sir, this is chicken soup. <laughs> what was the last one? Sir, this is chicken soup. <laughs> That's good. That's a dark horse. Yeah. Uh, I've got hashtag grab the lowest peach. <laughs> hashtag is that a butt sex thing? Hashtag family sex blanket. Oh, that's a good hashtag one. Hashtag gelatinous goo. Oh. And then hashtag boar infested countryside. Oh, that's pretty how good, do you, too. How do, you, how do you spell country? No, not with just a U, Michael. I, I know what you're getting at. Um, not subtle. I've got a hashtag. Quagmire's, Quagmire's cross country adventure. Doesn't country have an O in it? Nope. Nope. Giggity, giggity, extra goo. Oh, God. Um... Raise the peach. Hashtag running down your chin. Oh. That's from Matt's God, wonderful what, Boy, that was a that was a very um, sexually repressed poem. Well, you at wrote. the time, I didn't think it was. I Did think it, it was more of like. Well, that's what I was saying. Freud would have had a field day. Yeah, with that. Uh, like, yeah. Looking back on it now, I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Who's got the peach? Maybe. Apparently, I wasn't. You wrote in Satan as like this ultra horny, like. Apparently, I wasn't jerking off enough or something. <laughs> My God. Um, no, I actually was. Yeah, I'm sure. So. We all were. Yeah, I know. It was Bible college, so yeah. That, running down your. Okay, uh, so much cream. Um, and. Peaches and cream. Hashtag uh, considerably larger than a double stuff. I like, uh, for mine, I like family sex blanket. And grab the lowest peach. <laughs> I like running down your chin. Ew, no. Um, no that's pretty gross. I'm kind of, family sex blanket's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's a pretty that good one. seems so wrong. Well, really, in running down your chin doesn't? Well, it doesn't involve incest. Yes. I mean, you don't know what people are going to think when they 
sees Michael, family. Michael, sex we've ladies. had hashtag called butthole loophole. Well, and beat the Balrog. That was last week, Michael. Beat the Balrog. It's does it involve family sex? No, it does not. It might. You don't know. Oh God. <laughs> Like tapioca, but, like tapioca, but gaggier. That was one of our hashtags. <laughs> Again, <laughs> not hit three times. Sex. Hit three times with my finger. <laughs> I think I think we've passed the point I'm of Chris Hansen. Yeah, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Family sex blanket. Uh, <laughs> Michael, what about you? Like family sex blanket? I don't. I don't like. Family I don't care. Sex family blanket. sex blanket. Hold on. What do you like, Michael? Let's let's see what you like. I let's just make it all about you. What what I, does Michael like? I, any other one. Literally any other one. All right, grab the lowest peach. God damn it. Or about boar and boar infested countries. That's pretty good, too. Let's do that. All right, there we go. That's, that's something. <laughs> Countryside spelled with a U. No. <laughs> God damn it. If you have listened to this episode in its entirety, shitty it, sound and all. Uh, hit us up on social media with the hashtag, hashtag boar infested countryside. You can spell countryside however you'd like. Um, <laughs> Dealer's choice. Uh, yeah, we are on Twitter at Pastors Podcast. Uh, Paul, I need my. Nope. At MJ Basinger, Facebook.com slash Pastors Podcast, Instagram, Inglorious Pastors. Have we posted on that lately? What? Instagram? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out our website, IngloriousPastors.com. Uh, support us on Patreon, like good old Alex Samuel, and uh, you can get access to bonus podcasts, buy us around, and even help shape the content of this show. That's patreon.com slash podcast. Michael. Michael. God, at least wait till the song's over. <laughs> nah. What? What is this, Michael? <coughs> Michael, what is this? Bye, buddy. Oh. You find your dad. <laughs> All right. Wow.